Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you're listening to episode 61 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. The final part of my Hossegor Omnibus. This is the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Big thanks for checking this episode out, I hope you enjoy it. So if you follow me on Instagram, at We Look Sideways, you might have noticed recently that I placed a thoughtful hand on chin and posed the question, should my podcasts be longer? Now, the reason for this is that in the week after I released my interview with Ross Edgley, Ross headed to the States, did the rounds and all the proper podcasts, your Joe Rogans, your Rich Rolls. And I couldn't help but notice that the episode with Joe Rogan was three hours long. Three hours. I mean, that's got to be too long, right? I mean, that is longer than Lawrence of Arabia up there with Apocalypse Now and on a par with Goodfellas. I mean, I really liked Ross and I don't mind Joe Rogan every now and again, but three hours. And then the thought the thought struck me, maybe it's me that's too short. I mean, obviously in my most fevered podcasting dreams, I've got the big studio with the flat pack Ikea backdrop with some trinkets on and my guests come down to my lair in Brighton where we sit for hours merrily chatting away. But the fact is... My reputation hasn't quite reached the point where I can make those type of uh, demands on my guest's time. So I'm still really doing it on the move and getting an hour or so where I can grab them. But then, yeah, there's the other thing, like why on earth would you want to sit through a three-hour podcast? So anyway, I did the poll and as is my want, I posted quite a few of the responses I got on my Instagram stories. It's fair to say the response was mixed. For everyone like the guy in Brighton, he was actually the local Coast Guard, believe it or not, who stopped me on the beach and passionately said, I saw your poll, you should go on for hours, mate. And then, which was obviously very nice, there was someone who was like, nah. So I was none the wiser, really. And then I remembered, I've actually got my own episode with which to test this hypothesis the one you're about to listen to with Dave Mailman, which is my longest ever conversation and clocks in at a War and Peace-esque two hours, five minutes. Now, as you'll, originally, as you'll hear, I originally planned to snip this one into two halves, a bit like my early episode with Sasha Ham. But then I thought here was the ideal opportunity to bang out a whopper and see what the great looking sideways public think of it. So that's what I've done. You're about to listen to a two-hour conversation with me and Dave Melman. although I must say this freewheeling, roving conversation with one of the great movers and shakers of the surf and snow industry still does fall down into two distinct sections. There's the first two-thirds in which Dave recounts his incredible career in the industry, which spans three decades and takes in every conceivable type of job, marketing guru, broadcaster, journalist, distributor, announcer, and so on. This, incidentally, is something much requested by listeners who uh, tune into the show. And a lot of people do seem to want to know how to get into this ridiculous industry that me and Dave are part of. Where on earth do you start is, is a pretty common thing that I get emailed. So hopefully there's much to chew on here as Dave leaps from tail to tail, kicking his foot through every open door and voraciously munching his way through every opportunity that comes along. And then there's the final act in which Dave movingly and honestly talks me through the biggest struggle of his life his fight against leukemia. We talk about how he physically and mentally coped with this life-changing diagnosis, how he beat it, and how it's changed him as a man and a father. It's unflinchingly honest stuff. And I would say one of the most important and emotional chats I've ever had on this show. Now, me and Dave go way back, but funnily enough, we'd only ever met 
once before recording this even though we'd known of each other and been huge admirers of each other's work for years before i finally ended up meeting dave when i was invited round for dinner at my friend ed and sean lee's house in verbier a few years back and since then we've stayed in touch look for an opportunity to do this uh, podcast which we ended up doing in hossegore at the beginning of october 2017 thanks to my friends at vero for facilitating that by taking me out there as you're going to hear dave has got a massive heart um, a penchant for talking story, he could name drop for California, and he's got one of the most intriguing roller coaster career paths that you're likely to hear. It's a true honour to record his story for the show, and I hope you enjoy it. So here it is, my chat with Dave Mailman, Survivor. Enjoy. How you doing? I'm good. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. Yeah. We For find, the what, the second time in our life? Which is hilarious, isn't it? Because when um, it, we, for years, had mutual friends that just kept saying to each other, you must know Dave, you must know Matt. Yeah. And then we only actually met last year, didn't we? Exactly. Um, Ed and, and Sean Lee's house in Verbia. Or maybe it was two years ago. It was actually. two years ago because we were supposed to get together and do this interview last year during Verbia. And is, I had to pull out because... That is right. For personal reasons yeah 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 but we we hooked it up we've been talking about it for a while haven't we since almost the second or third uh podcast i think yeah well you've been a one-man cheering squad well i was just giving suggestions on facebook and people i can't remember who it was but maybe scotty nixon or somebody like that one of the one of the old school boys yeah popped in and said what about you dave and i never kind of you know i don't i never really thought about even putting, you know, raise, I, I'm not the kind of person to raise my hand and say, Hey, me, me, me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but once you said, ah, oh, yeah, no, that would be cool. Then like, you know, why not? Then let's try and make it happen. But, yeah. um, I, I've found it. I don't listen to podcasts like uh, this. I really do not listen to podcasts. You're the only podcast I listen to. So that's nice. Um, and, but the, I find the, your guests are, Super interesting. Um, some of them have very funny stories to tell, you know, guys like and are entertaining to listen to, like Ed and Christian. Yeah. Um, of course, your best guest ever was Sean. So that that episode was absolutely went mad. That was so popular, and I was really gratified by that because she was really unsure about doing it. Yeah. She was a bit like, well, why is he going to want to listen to me? Well, I'm a bit unsure about it as well. And I ask that same question. I don't think it's going to be as successful as Sean's um, because she is a very inspiring woman. Yeah. Um, but I also, some of the early ones, um, and I wanted to make a list of the names of the ones I really enjoyed and I didn't get t a chance to do it, but uh, the documentary filmmaker, Orlando. Orlando, yep. exactly. I'm going to get uh, him on again, actually. He was he was fantastic. Yeah, I he found was brilliant. him very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a legend. The guy from Pat Patagonia was also very interesting to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and The one I asked one question to. Exactly. And he just <laughs> talked the rest of the time. That yeah. was fantastic. Every, every time anyone mentions that, they go, yeah, you didn't you didn't get a word in edgewise there, did you? And, like, the, uh, and the urban running guy. Um, Charlie Dark. Yes, Charlie Dark. Yeah, Charlie was great. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's interesting because they're the ones that I, I kind of do on a bit of a, you know, that sound like a complete dickhead, like, but a storytelling instinct, you know what I mean? Like, well, it's just a good story. So people are going to be into it. But obviously there's, there's part of me that's like, you know, 
clearly your Mick Fannings and your Alex Honolds are going to get more clicks just yeah. because of, of who they are. But I really like the fact now that I can kind of put people in that, that I'm pretty sure people are going to find interesting even yeah. if they might not have the profile, you know. So no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no, none whatsoever. Yeah. So you've just been doing the, what is it, SEMA? Is the Euro SEMA Surf Summit. Yeah. yeah. So um, how's that been? Well, what is it for a start? For, well, Eurosema is the European Surf Industry Manufacturers Association. Yeah. Um, and which came out of the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association, which started in the U.S. about 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, which was basically a way to federate all the surf brands and keep out brands like Hollister and, you know, the pretenders, basically, sure. who were trying to come into the industry. Steal um, the class. That's exactly just, yeah. you know, take the bits out of surfing that they wanted and put some surfboards and some palm trees on some on some Hawaiian cut shirts and, yeah. uh, and try and, you know, tell the world that they were that they were surf brands. Well, basically the, the cultural war that's been going on since day zero. <laughs> Let's call it that. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Trying yeah. to usurp the uh, the 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 surf culture. Yeah. Um, so it's been a long time since then and it's basically it's a conference that they put on every year uh with inspirational speakers uh that are from within the industry and outside the industry this year they had kai lenny on who's the kind of the up-and-coming waterman yeah rides everything yeah uh, is you know super into foiling and it was very eye-opening because i tend to be an old an angry old man of the surf industry and it's should be all about surfing skating and snowboarding and all these new sports have no business being here sure um so it was actually awesome to sit down and be able to ask questions of kai and to hear his vision of things like kite foiling and right. you know toe-in foiling at jaws and stuff like that yeah and, and uh he has a very refreshing outlook on on the new sports and new ways to do things. And what I really appreciated was the fact that for him, it's <clears throat> right board, right time. Yeah. And uh, and like this new foil craze, um, we, we talked a little bit about some of the towns here in the southwest of France outlawing foiling, um, at least during the summer months when there's too many people in the water. And Kai said, well, why would you want to go foil in the middle of a crowd of, of 100 people in in thigh high shore break yeah anyways that's yeah. not the it's nor the time nor the place so and uh and he really pointed out as well that it's it's up to the shops and the brands manufacturing and selling these products that they and it goes along with stand-up paddle boards and and kite surfing etc there's a time and a place for everything and uh and they really need to educate the people who go and say oh wow i want to do that it's like yeah but you can do that we'll sell you that foil yeah but you can't go do it in the middle of a crowded beach break in the middle of summer it's as kai said foils are made for riding the worst waves possible as far away from surf breaks as possible that's, yeah well there's that's no what it's all about. There's, there's no sort of social contract for it yet is there do you know what i mean no. like there's no no one no one really knows where the boundaries are like what how you should behave around it like where it's acceptable i was surfing in senon like in the middle of the summer it was packed and there was a guy on one and yeah he could surf he was really good but i was a bit like yeah really? no, that's not the yeah you know like charging around this shore break like around like about hundreds other surfers yeah like, which is the last place you should be doing it yeah and, so. and again i was just a bit like well 
that that's the thing with other with the other disciplines the traditional disciplines you kind of know the form don't you you know everybody there is a social contract you, you we do and we don't that's once again i mean let's look We're at you're supposed to you're supposed to <laughs> yeah but and growing up in california we did because it was regulated and as kai explained in his conference in hawaii it's regulated i yeah. mean he grew up on Heavily. on maui yeah. and he had you know, Laird Hamilton and Dave Kalama, just to name two, who yeah. were doing the regulating. So you couldn't do anything on that island without those two, you know, approval. And and there's a hierarchy and they and but it's not just a hierarchy. They teach you from, you know, the, the elders. There's a respect for your elders and the people who've come before you and are more experienced than you. And and which doesn't exist and i had that growing up in california but here in france like surfing has blown up so fast and there's people coming from so many different places that there is in the summertime it's complete anarchy in the lineup and because there is no respect even you know people who have no business being out in waves overhead high um they will just you and if you try and nicely explain to them that if you just go a hundred meters up the beach, yeah, there's a wave that is perfect for you, but they want to be there where all the pros are and it's barreling and and they're out there on on you know soft boards or plastic boards and 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 they're a danger not only to the other people in the lineup but to themselves as well. And it's not until they get literally smacked down by a by a overhead wave yeah and they almost drown that they finally go oh maybe i should paddle down to where it's half as big and 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 the waves are breaking in a, in a much gentler fashion yeah so. yeah well it's that it's that like you know for that phrase that social contract again it's, it's broken isn't it you know exactly and and in the mountains as well i mean people want to go free riding but there's a you know even today when they're there is much more education about having going out of bounds with your your Arva and your probe and your avalanche backpack and but you know people are maybe they're going out of bounds with them but half of them still don't know how they work yeah yeah <laughs> and and they have no idea and they go and get themselves into serious trouble and yeah. they kind of do the same thing here so it's great to have all these products these safety products um, but if the people manufacturing them and especially the people selling them do not do the proper education in the stores um then everything just kind of goes haywire and people can get can get hurt and in you know certain instances instances can can die because of it so well it's a classic problem isn't it and you know like you said it's the, it's it's fueled by growth isn't it you know it's fueled yeah. by popularity and growth which is obviously an, an absolute catch 22 for the industry because you know we're all working in this industry and we're all trying to sell products we're all trying to you know ultimately we're all trying to encourage growth by new participants exactly you know and so how do you well to get back to this conference yeah the, so the, that's my question really that, that's a, so. yeah but that's exactly it this is because i didn't want to i did, actually didn't want to moderate this conference because i've really taken a step back from the industry and i kind of like oh do i really want to go there and get back in the middle of the whole you know, surf industry manufacturers association thing. And, uh, and then I said, you know what? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it this year. I'll give it a try and we'll see how it goes. And by the second day I was just amped because right. there were discussions like this going on that yeah. are really super interesting, even, you know, and people passionate about things like that. And we talked about the growth of the industry and 
one of the presenter the presentations was about iconic brands and what it takes to become an iconic brand and and at the end one of the 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 Fred Bass actually one of the the original toe surfers here full hardcore surfer and former OG yeah exactly and former uh, um, CEO of, uh, of of Rip Curl Europe and he yeah. was asking the, the the person that was presenting. Um, well, what have we done wrong? We're, we are iconic brands, but our, our, we're struggling with sales. And, and that was the, and then the discussion went, well, are you guys, yes, you're iconic. You've marketed yourselves well, but has, has your sale, have your sales strategies followed that marketing? Um, and your, and then another guy, um, Frederick Tan, Talent is his name. He's a he works for SportGuide.com, and he kind of raised his hand and said, "With all due respect, maybe you need to uh, I look at your uh, distribution channels." And then I jumped in, saying, "And another thing, maybe you need to work at look at your business model because maybe Patagonia's business model is the right one. Maybe none of the surf brands should have gone public in the first place. Maybe you all should have just said, we it's like sustainable development, yeah. but it's sustainable level of sales. Yeah." Patagonia has capped their sales and we're not going to grow more than this because growing any more than that is going to take us outside of our kind of safe zone yeah, uh, for yeah. lack of a better word yeah, and, like and through, through the looking glass that's exactly it yeah. whereas whereas I mean I know because I was there when they did it you know Quicksilver they just went we're going to be Nike and our five-year plan or 10-year plan is to is to be the you know as big as Nike. Maybe that's a that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the goal was to was that unlimited growth of the the early two thousands. And I've got a question on that because, like you say, you had a ringside seat of that, which we'll get to because of because of that part of your career. But was there any discussion about the responsibility, uh, you know, about this topic? Was there any discussion about did anyone stick their hand up and go like, well, what's that going to do for the culture? Um. Well, this is the thing with the the surf summit now is it's not so much the captains of industry, um, and uh, and there's a lot more, not general public, but there it's a it's a much more eclectic gathering of people. There were a few captains of industry in there. Sure, uh, Derek O'Neill, who's one of the founders of Billabong Europe, was there, and then Fred Bass was there, um, and I'm probably forgetting. A couple others, but they were the the two who I spoke with a bit afterwards. And but no, as far as to answer that that question, um, th there's not that much introspection about what are we doing to board sports in general. And but I I think it's it's kind of like uh, you know Pandora's box. The box is open, and there's nothing that they can do about it anymore so yeah i mean that's increasingly the viewpoint that you hear isn't it like the pragmatic like look it's happened so the question now is like what do we do about that you know yeah and, and it's like i said education as far as just keeping keeping things that just so it just doesn't get dangerous in the surf in skate parks in in on the mountain and is is really everybody who's involved needs to educate people who are just coming into it about the the dangers and the safety aspect of all these different sports i mean um just from dropping in in a skate bowl how to do it you know correctly or in a skate park so you don't 
cut off, you know, run across somebody else's line or respect in the in the lineup how to how to make your way into a crowded lineup in the surf and and still manage to catch waves when you're not the best surfer in the lineup. But how do you do that? It's not by paddling out to the peak and trying to go head to head with, you know, with the, the top pros that are that are there. It's by surfing the next wave over and then watching everything that's going on and 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 reading up on it and same thing on in the mountain it's not it's not the 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 afternoon after the the verbia extreme has finished climbing up to the top <laughs> yeah. of the bec de los and yeah, and yeah. dropping in just because you just saw 25 of the world's best do it um, and half of them that didn't even want to probably because the conditions weren't even maybe that fantastic on the day, but it's their job. So they did it, you know, but, and, but there's people that are completely just, they have, they have no clue. They don't, they don't think before they act. And is that because of the world that we live in today or is it because, or is it because we haven't done a good enough job educating the people that we are trying to sell all of this product to? And then, and then with the, it's grown to such a point where there's also people selling these products who don't even do the sports themselves. And and I mean, and I would suggest not, it's the latter. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, I would really because you know the other thing about you know if we're talking about education and and how you educate people on how to behave and stuff, it's not exactly it's not done in the most effective way is it i would say you no know, it's 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 done in a way which you know and, and we know what we're talking about you know it's done it's done in a way which is 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 aggressive and is and is elitist and which isn't calculated to it's it's done on uh, this is my view it's done on the onus of the people that try to protect what they've got rather than this pragmatic view of like well it's happened so we might as well educate people and what happens is people get there by default but there's a very, very long, painful, torturous apprenticeship while people have to work this out by making a lot of mistakes. Yeah. I mean, that's how it seems to be, really. That's very true. When it was small, I mean, when I was growing up, um, we got taught the rules of, exactly. of the lineup and surfing by, you know, the kids in the neighborhood that were surfing at the local break and that were, you know, we were 10 and they're 14. We're on our bodyboards there on their surfboards. And we just... You know, we learned because they told us not necessarily in the nicest of, of ways, but yeah. if you step out of line, if you don't do what we say and you don't respect the the rules of the the rules of the waves, um, then you're you know we're going to send you into the beach, <laughs> one way or another. And up in the mountains, it's this it's the same way as well. Huh? If you you know when I was at La Grave in the in the in the mid nineties, um, if you even tried started hiking up to some part of the mountain where the locals were like that you know the, not even I mean, they wanted to go there first but if they hadn't been there it was be, for there was a reason because it was dangerous yeah so they would one way or another explain to you that you're not going up there and people might would ask well why not and you know because <laughs> you're yeah. gonna kill yourself but they learned and yeah. nowadays it's like I said it's just gotten so big that I and we well, had a sustainable community, didn't you? Yeah, we you did. Had, That's exactly. You right. had a small sustainable community. Like, you know, it's like the, you know, takes a village to raise a child sort of That's idea, exactly isn't it? it? You know, it's yeah. like, but now the community is so big, and and the lines are so blurred that 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 old ecosystem is basically no longer valid, is it? It doesn't really work like that. You might be fortunate enough to live in a community like a couple that you've just mentioned, and like where we are now, Hosagor or whatever, where 
it's you're still able to enforce it in that way but by and large you know that that's that approach has gone hasn't it really it has and it's and these sports are although they're still niche they're becoming they're in the the eye of the mainstream because of people like me what you know putting on big events back in the, you know back in the day and yeah. people like you know the the x games and and the olympics yeah <laughs> um and and but it's just so it's just like soccer if you know if when when uh uh um i don't want to say ronaldo but um uh, he's not the one i'm thinking of the uh oh the brazilian who uh, for paris who plays for paris neymar neymar of course when neymar you know falls over because somebody blew in his general direction yeah. you know and goes rolling around on the ground well that's not the way you're supposed to you're not setting a good example for the kids yeah but whereas Lionel Messi who doesn't fall over you literally have to bowl him over for him to go down and then when he goes down he gets straight back up and doesn't complain about it that is a good example but that's the problem it gets so big now that that people are not setting good examples. And I think even within surfing, there's this kind of entitled culture. And some of the, some of the kids that are coming, that are coming up, that are on tour, that are making videos and just the way they hold themselves and the way they act in and out of the water is not setting a good example for the, for the kids. And I'm sure it's the same in, in skating and snowboarding and. Well, it just becomes self-perpetuating, doesn't it? That's exactly it. It just basically, you know, regenerates the behavior that you try to avoid yeah. so once so again we've yeah we've we've lost control of it it's it's like you know i mean i look at my my son going to school he's you know six and a half years old and and sometimes he just doesn't want to listen to what the teacher tells him yeah, to do yeah. no, you don't do it. and then and then well that's another thing isn't it? you know the, another big part of the appeal of these activities is is that is the fact that it's perceived as a place where rule normal rules don't really apply you know, like it'd be remiss not to sort of acknowledge that, that for a lot of people, that's a huge appeal of something like surfing, that you can behave differently. Yeah, you know, it's normal you social. There are no rules. No, normal social norms don't apply, and that that is a huge part of it, isn't it? So, were there any? Obviously, it sounds like a really healthy debate. Were there any kind of solutions posited by somebody like Kai? You know, who's obviously got this great perspective. Well, other than Kai surprising me and and being very mature beyond his years and saying there's a time and a place and we need to learn to respect our elders and the the unwritten rules of the of board sports of the road of 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 the lineup of the skate park of the the of the mountain um and in his case of ocean sports in 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 general he said i would never think of taking my foil out in a in a crowded lineup in the middle of summer so it wouldn't because he grew up in an environment where the where the elders from maui were were teaching him the rules from the because he's grown up in in a small in a small community of board riders yeah yeah so you've mentioned your own background a couple of times southern california yeah. Um, I mean, what I think I said, I said this to you before we start recording. Like, what like it's so hard to know where to start with you. You know, you've been like proper industry lifer, done it, seen it, sold it, presented it. You know, yeah. magazines, TV, events, announcing, <laughs> marketing. It's a long old list. It really is. When when I hear you list it off like that, yeah, that's yeah, exactly, ex- it. exactly. So I kind of figured like chronologically is a good 
good way to go, you know. Okay. So I'll try it. This, this, if I really, you know, talk story like I usually do, we'll still be here tomorrow. So I'll, I'll try and really. <laughs> I'll try and steer you. I'll try and really cut yeah. it down. But um. But yeah. So, so you grew up in California, right? Born in Southern California. Yeah. Um, 1970, Newport, yeah. Newport Beach, in the same hospital uh, as Tom Curran. Right. So I just like to throw that one yeah, out there yeah. every now That's and then. Pretty legit. Um, <laughs> start grew up two minutes, uh, two minutes from the beach on my skateboard. Right. Um, rode my skateboard to the beach with first my bodyboard under my arm, and then later on my surfboard under my arm. Uh, learned to surf when I was. First stood up on a surfboard when I was nine years old. Right. Uh, first snowboards came out oh, probably about that time too, but uh, my first board was a Burton Performer 140. Yeah. I got that in 82. Right. Um, and we were lucky we could go up to Snow Summit and surf under the uh, surf and snowboard under the lights at night. So right. we were one of the... We were an hour and a half drive from one of the first resorts that actually allowed snowboarding. So yeah. we weren't, wasn't one of those ones. Although we did, we had a house up in the mountains as well, um, uh, which was, was nice. We'd go up there on the, on the weekends with my parents and we kind of built our own little snake track with jumps and stuff in the, in the trees. We lived on the, the top of this little peak so we could drop down off of the, around the house and we were dropping big cliffs that were all of, you know, three meters high Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back then, but uh, <coughs> on a 140. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. It was, uh, and of Excuse course, me. you know, just completely wiping out. I, I don't think we stuck anything, but, um, yeah. And of course, skateboarding was, well, you know, we've, my first real skateboard was an Alva with, uh, in independent trucks and, and, uh, road rider fours. So that kind of sets the, so you were like immersed completely, but I wasn't ripping at, anything i was a good surfer uh, my brother was a mike um, was a much better all-rounder than i was um actually most of the memories that we have of being kids and riding boards are my pictures of him surfing skating and snowboarding so um and then uh we both skied as well so right. you know that that's because you know, with that at our age in Southern California, lots of skiing. Um, well, crazy scene back then, right? In California, ski scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was Mammoth Mountain, and, yeah. and I mean, just all over the place in our local mountains as well, because you know, B Big Bear and, like I said, Snow Summit, uh, Snow Valley, and then we went on trips to to Idaho and and Utah and different places like that. Yeah. Um, on on family ski vacations, but I was really all about surfing. I didn't kind of push it too hard, skateboarding or snowboarding, because I didn't want to. I, I didn't. I loved surfing so much. I didn't want to like break an arm and have to be out of the water. For, yeah. You know, three. So you or, cho chose your moments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then of course we did all the other sports. You know that California kids do. We you know played soccer. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. basketball, baseball, you know, all the all the rest of it. Um, and then to kind of move forward, I went to high school on the East Coast. I went to boarding school for four years to Phillips Exeter Academy. Um, I started taking French because my dad and one of my cousins um, had both, they were both, um, they both did pre-med and minored in, in French. So that's where the whole French thing comes from. Um, I did two years at the University of Bordeaux. Right. Uh, so that was a family, a family thing. It was a family. It was a family thing. Yeah. And so I was at UCLA after high school. I did. Then I 
to, did a year abroad um, and then took a year sabbatical and stayed abroad because my brother came over and joined me at the University of Bordeaux. He'd never studied French. He learned in the French for Foreigners program up right. there. Um, and that's another, you know, hour-long conversation, yeah, yeah. just the Bordeaux stories from back then yeah. going and, you know, skipping school to go surf Lackanau and stuff like that was fantastic. And coming down here to Hossiger and Biarritz and stuff on the weekends was was a very eye-opening experience. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and then I came back. We both came back after two years at University of Bordeaux, finished up studying at UCLA. In the meantime, um, we'd worked in a surf shop, the Moss Surf Shop in Moliette. It's about a half an hour up the road from where we're sitting now, um, where we both gave surf lessons and sold surfboards and wetsuits. And, you know, we were the, the two California guys, the kind of, the, but that spoke French. And so for the... The, the the surf shop owner who was a buddy of ours it was just like yeah you know, he couldn't have asked for anything better that's a nice little niche from a credibility standpoint yeah. but that's really where my whole career started was and how i got into it because i was a i was a french major you know right and a russian language minor so, really yeah i didn't know that I, well it's where'd that come from i don't speak because oh that's a, that's a story from high school but i really looked up to the the two russian teachers at my high school um and we took a, I took a trip to the Soviet Union uh, in my junior year, my third year of high school. Uh, wow! And it was, so what? This is mid eighties. This is this is in eighty six. Wow. 87, I think it was eighty seven. It would have been three years before the war came down. Ex yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then then went back the next year because I played water polo in high school. Right. We won the New England championships, and so our our. our water polo coach who was also the swim coach um and the goalie of the water polo team his dad was one of the two russian teachers taught russian and french as a matter of fact that was a uh, mr morgan um, brian morgan and right. he organized the trip with coach necton and we went over and played against uh some some russian teams that were there were some pro teams there were some university teams and and um we got our butts kicked because of course the first thing we did once we got there was just get, get on, on the vodka, vodka. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they make you do over there exactly I've been in Russia. it was fantastic you just, you, you, they give you a hangover when you check in don't they yeah that's, that's exactly it so yeah. we were at a distinct disadvantage in the yeah, pool no but, uh, but it was a great uh, it was a great experience so i bet right so so that was like a little another little sort of linguistic sideline Definitely, and it yeah. taught me a lot. Unfortunately, my Russian is really not very good anymore. Um, right. Because after two years in France, I I'd lost a lot of the Russian because um, I wasn't able to keep studying Russian in France for reasons I won't go into because it'd take too long to explain. But um, yeah. Uh, so to get back to the actual story, um, the, yeah, the French French language in the in in the family. So I st I studied languages at the university. I had no communication, marketing studies, nothing whatsoever. But I right. grew up in the in the you know the seventies and eighties in Southern California. Yeah. So I knew you know board sports. You had the um, you had the grounding. Yeah, it's one of those ones kind of you know yeah, you, yeah. you grow up in it. It's yeah. like you know I fell into the in that era the as well when I was when I, mean, I was young. Yes, as well, which is a very yeah like that's the, when everything was happening. Yeah, I mean the 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 perfect bridge between you know the golden age of surfing the yeah. early years of snowboarding the birth of bull riding and yeah. pools you know yeah, the whole exactly. um dog town and the z boys yeah. even though i never you know i was a bit a, a tiny bit younger than those guys but i had a couple friends who were um who were actually skating with that crew too some guys yeah. from newport so 
Um, it was, uh, and then, you know, the whole surf scene and, you know, the wedge and yeah, yeah. just all sorts of, you know, it was just a kind of a, a I don't even know how to describe it, a melting pot of yeah, board sports. Yeah, I was going to say, really. like and, just all these influences. Yeah, yeah, you know, and all the all the guys, you know, the, like the beginning of snowboarding and, and freestyling up in, you know, at, at uh, Snow Summit and Bear Mountain and Mountain High. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Places like that. Yeah, right. So, um, so what was the first kind of industry job that you got then you well said, you said this was the sort of so it was the yeah that that was exactly if we can call it an apprenticeship although i was being paid to um to teach but so i came back over and we started a distribution company with the owner of of the moss surf shop his name is Hervé conquette and uh and two other friends and we quickly realized that uh distributing uh surf skate snow products in especially at that time which was in 94 i graduated june of 94 from ucla came back over to france with my you know i, I basically graduated had my, my diploma in one hand and my plane ticket in the other hand and and uh um i think i flew back over um, like a couple days after my after my what it would have been my 24th birthday because um, i graduated had my birthday and then straight back to france um so distribution company that didn't work out. What we what we try like just bring in boards. Hempstead Clothing. <laughs> wow, there we go. I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? Uh, you know, once again, an idea before it's time. Yeah. Uh, now there's hemp clothing companies, you know, left, right, and center. Although yeah. they're still kind of struggling, but at the time, um, there was still a stigma against, you know, sure. Uh, um, hemp and you know cannabis in general. Yeah, uh, we were uh, Piasso Surf Skates, um, which is another product that doesn't you know doesn't exist anymore. But it was basically a it was a skateboard, but it was super long, kind of shaped like a surfboard. And all the Carver boards and everything that are out nowadays, that was once again the precursor of of that whole kind of surf skating. Yeah. Uh, cruiser skateboard movement um and what else do we have those were basically the two products and then shift custom ride snowboards um from ken kelly uh who has worked for nitro for years and then busted out to do his own thing and hooked up with the boys from uh it was the first brand that was oem'd from uh from mervin manufacturing right actually so you and it was you and Herve, did you say? Yes, yes. So and, and, and Fred and Caro, but yeah. And were you were you lot like you spotted the opportunity and you thought? I mean, I'm just. Well, I was well, just well, looking for a reason to come back to France. I mean, that's what <laughs> and, I'm getting at. Like, where hang do, out and go surfing because because that is quite ahead of its time. I mean, what year are we talking? This was ninety. Like I said, it's ninety four. Yeah, I mean that's early doors to be to be sort of thinking. Yeah. That and you're it was to try and do that. It was you know. too early doors. Actually, yeah, exactly. that was the problem. So did you did you always? And as I said, none of us had any experience doing. The most experienced of the group was Aravian. He had it because he had a surf he had a, shop. Because he had a shop. Yeah. yeah. So was it just like blind confidence of youth kind yeah, of thing? For sure. Yeah. You were just like, yeah, we can do that. Exactly. You know, like no business plan. Yeah. Nothing. Just, yeah, well, I well, had my contacts from California and the boys fronted us, you know, right. The, the, the samples and everything like that. Yeah. Just like, yeah, we'll have a go at that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's and exactly it didn't work. It. And it didn't work. But, um, but that opened the door. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we did, uh, the Glee Expo trade show that September, um, 
wasn't the first Glee Expo, but it was the, the, the trade show that used to happen down in Anglet. Yeah. Um, and that's where I met uh, Steve Vatia and his wife, Taryn. And Steve was another crazy Californian who had, he I've although met, had a business I've background, yeah. um, business and finance, uh, and was a surfer though from, from Laguna Beach, so yeah. just from just down the road from me in California. And we, you know, literally we're same same mentality same guys same place and we can you know we've got the connections we've got the products we can you know we can do this so at when we realized that this first distribution company which didn't even have a name uh wasn't going to happen um steve steve offered me to become partners in his company um and which was doing distribution management for a bunch of other brands so we had uh world jungle um third rail clothing uh pro light Right. Um, travel bags. Uh, we tried to keep going with uh, with shift custom ride snowboards. That that worked for a little while, and then we had switch manufacturing. So we were the first people to bring step ins to Europe. Yeah, I remember them. They had the plates, didn't they? Exactly. Axel rode them, didn't he? Axel did. And Johnny many Barr other people. Rode him. Johnny Barr rode them. Johnny rode them, I remember. Uh, Dede Rems and, uh, and Jerome Ruby yeah. rode them as well. Had the high back in the boot, basically. It, the first ones had the high back yeah. in the boot. I remember the... selling them. I used to work at TSA. I remember selling them. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, You know, we actually may have crossed paths back then. Back then yeah. Because I, mean, I was doing tours with is... Steve in the UK. Yeah, this probably like... With about... Alan Green and A4. Yeah, this would be about the time that I, you know... My first job in the industry, yeah. effectively, I was already working at White Lines, but you know, obviously, that didn't pay any money. So, yeah. <laughs> I was working for Jeremy, working for a mag, making money. What? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, there's, there's, yeah, more episodes than that, I think. No um, doubt. Right. Okay. So, so that was that was the in, and yeah. then thanks to Switch, um, we did uh, we did a test, we did a demo weekend um, at the on the glacier in Val Alice. Right. And we invited everybody in the industry to come out and, and and all the magazines the guys from on board especially but uh and our distributors we had gigi roof there gigi roof road switch back in the day too. i did not know that yes wow <laughs> kept that one quiet <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was a young little whippersnapper but God, he, he must have been about 13 then exactly Jesus. that was exactly yeah. it i think he was 13 even yeah 12 or 13 yeah right just You're really back young boy yeah um, they already had him, uh, I can't remember his last name, but Dieter was the, the Austrian distributor and for a boards, we had him doing switch and he was doing Volcom. As yeah. Well. So, so this is all through a four in the UK then, which is Alan and Darren. And uh, a four. Yeah. Yeah. That exactly. That yeah, was all yeah. that there's, yeah. we had our kind of our groups and once yeah. we were in with, with, uh, you know, Regis Roland, the yeah. genie of the, yeah, yeah. of the glide, the much requested he guest opened, for this show. No doubt. Yeah. For sure. You should definitely yeah, get him love in. To, yeah. But I don't know if you can subtitle, uh, Put subtitles yeah, right. on, on well, a I'm, podcast. On, I told aside, but I'm I'm gonna start filming them quite soon. Ah, very good. So that could yes, that, that could would work. work. Wait, yeah, because yeah. Regis, his he speaks fluent English, but he has a very heavy French accent. Yeah. So some of it, and and if you can film him, because his he speaks with his hands as well. So yeah, it's yeah. just absolutely fantastic if you can yeah. get it uh, get it in there yeah. and throw some subtitles underneath as well. But do it in English, but subtitle yeah. it as well, so people are don't lose out some of the yeah w due to the accent anyways that's another so, so, so val sonalis val sonalis yeah onboard guys show up and we start chatting they give me a copy of the magazine i take it i'm reading it on the on the train back to paris at the end of the whole thing and uh and it was drew and 
obviously Drew Stevenson, yep. who's come up in quite a few of your, your yeah, podcasts yeah. and should be another guest yeah, some definitely, definitely. sometime down the line. Uh, read the magazine. Oh, my goodness gracious. This is like reading... Um, Australia's surfing life. Yeah. You know, it the the style, the of course it's two Aussies very, writing it. So very ahead of its time, but yeah, then. for sure. And I was I was blown away. So I'm like, I like you guys. Yeah. Um Johnny Barr and I went on a summer camp tour with A boards, um, Axel, Johnny, uh, Phil Lalmont, me, Yannick Amve, um, and Drew asked Johnny and uh, and me if we could shoot some pictures and write some words about our the tour of the snow parks so they were looking for a new angle how to cover the summer you know the summer camps and and so we you know so we did it and that was i'm we could write a book just about that one summer it was absolutely crazy but but that was a quiet one <laughs> <laughs> with that team that Jesus. was that was huge and if, you know verbier back in the day with you know with with Gomar, morgan bouvon kind of running when and web you know jeff webb yeah at verbier diablere with i can't even remember the the name and name of the guys that were doing Diab but diablere was crazy sold in with klaus marco yeah heyday proper yeah. heyday yeah. Proper heyday, partying hard, riding hard, yeah. you know, just ridiculous stuff. The teenage years of yeah, yeah, the teenage years yeah. of snowboarding. That's exactly it. So, the so the the onboard guys liked um, they liked that. And in the meantime, I'd also written an article. I went on the Buffalo Olivier Cuisseau from uh, from Arnett at that time. Had he was doing marketing management for them. And he took me along to their snow stock event in La Clusa and asked me if I could write an article um, about the event that he could then distribute to the magazines. And this was kind of all happening at about the same time. Right. And so at the same time, I already met the onboard guys and they and we, you know, I'd written a few words for them, but it was mostly getting the photos and. And then they read this article and, and, and I get a call. I can't remember if it was from Drew or from Russell, but. Hey, you actually can write, right? <laughs> and I said, "Well, yeah, I well, guess." Well, that would have stood out as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, back then, back then, so they're like, "Oh, yeah, it's it's really nice to actually receive a text from somebody who can actually write." And, that's exactly how and I it's got not my... a German writing in yeah. English or a Swede writing in English because those guys, that's what they were getting as the European snowboard magazine. That's what they were getting. Yeah, exactly how I got my job as well. They were like, "Wow, you." You can actually write. Do you want to do some more? Yeah, that that. Well, there you go. That was it. So that was the whole beginning of the onboard thing. Then they, they were in Ger English and German, uh, and they wanted to do the French edition. And I was the only person that they knew, who lived in France and yeah. who spoke French and English. Yeah. So they asked right. me to become the, the editor of the French edition, which I was for two issues until. We started getting really nice letters, but nonetheless, letters saying, um, although Mr. Mailman probably speaks French fluently, um, his <laughs> French is very good, but it is not to the level that we would expect from a French language magazine. Please find someone to either correct his translations or, you know, so we hired, ended up hiring Gaetan de Volder, who was a... Uh, um, a uh, lovely young lady at the time from Belgium who came in and took over the the editing duties right. of uh, of uh, of onboard back in the day, and then I moved up into the associate editor position and then finished off 
um, as editor-in-chief for my last issue while I was there because Drew was in jail in Sweden. Yeah, which is the story that Rusty <laughs> told, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It's so it's such a common theme, this. Like basically it's kind of like making your own look, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, yeah. isn't it? It's the same that that's why I really like these these stories about like how people like yourself got into the industry because it's these little links, isn't it? It's these little that's connections. Exactly it. You know, like you've just you know that oh well and then I met this guy and then I met this guy and then this came about and this came about. And, it's, uh, it, it's really such a theme of that era. Exactly. And I kind of just, I, you know, I grew up in the board sports, so I had the knowledge there, but I didn't have the marketing or communication knowledge for what I was, would go on to, to do later. I, I was a good student, so I learned how to write and yeah. spell correctly, which yeah. was... <clears throat> well, yeah, you got, you <laughs> you know, got, that, got that higher education so that, grounded. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That's, you know, you know that I, I graduated from, I graduated from university. Gives I, you that, you know, doesn't it? It does. Um, but at the same time, I'm probably one of the few people from my generation who actually uses his you know, university diploma in his day to day life. You know, being a French major, I actually, you know, yeah, yeah. I ended up living, you know, living it. So that's. Um, but as far as how did I become, you know, marketing director of Quicksilver Europe with no marketing experience whatsoever? That that was, I really learned it as I, as I went along, and I just kept an open mind and I listened to people. That's one thing that people need to learn to do. We're here doing a lot of talking, but you know, you need to know when to close your mouth and yeah. listen to the person across the way when they're saying something that's that's interesting and that can teach you something. Which is another thing that uh, at the Eurosema uh, Surf Summit, I had to keep my mouth shut. And when you're moderating things, even though you have lots of things that, to say, yeah. you need to, you know, you're yeah, not yeah. the one that everybody's there to, to hear. Um, so just to finish off on the whole career thing, because, uh, and I'll go quickly. Um, at the same time, I had started announcing events. Um, I did the Derby de la Meige with Didi Haas. Um, this would have been in 94. Five, I believe. Um, he basically needed help. The Derby de la Meige, for people who don't know, is the longest on snow. Um, it's kind of like a, it started as a Chinese downhill. Now it's a timed race. They come in waves, and it's mono ski, ski, telemark, and snowboard. And fastest man. It's all off piste. It's in La Grave, so it's there's no groomed runs. Fastest man and woman from the top of the mountain to the bottom in the male and female in those four categories. And so very important is the safety briefing, but Didi, especially back then, didn't speak English very well, so he asked me if I could translate the safety meeting for him, which I did, and then he asked me, can you also help me present and translate the award ceremony, which I did, and then he invited me back for the Snow Legend uh, ski snowboard freeride event that he did the next year, which I would believe was 96, and Nicholas Halwoods from Verbi Extreme was there. Right. And heard me. He'd come to scope uh, riders, and uh, and he heard me announce and said, "Can you do you want to come and be one of the announcers at the Extreme uh, later on this season? This was in January, and the Extreme was in March. So I said, sure. And they threw me up to the top of the mountain. Um, and I was interviewing guy, the guys and girls in the start gate um, before they would drop into down the face of the Bec de Ross. Right. So those are some pretty interesting interviews, yeah, as you can imagine. Jesus. Yarko Hentonen was <laughs> turned around and just said, 
Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Got anything to say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not great. Yeah. And then the Americans were, I can I can tell this story now because weed's legal in California now and it pretty much was at the time in Switzerland. But like Steve Classic I heard, I heard had, that about had the Steve. bong at the top of yeah. the at the top of the Beck Davos and, and him and Laurie Gibbs and and uh, I just cannot get my head around that. A few of the other crew up there just snapping bomb hits just before they dropped in. I cannot get crazy. my head around that. I Matt Goodwill. Yeah, you know. I can't. Literally, can't think of anything I would like to do less. No, me either. And that. I loved weed back in the day too. And that was one. Of, and they're like, "Mailman, you want?" I'm like, "Nah, thanks, guys." But I just, you know, yeah. Even <laughs> just standing there. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. I'm just, you know, I would. I, they're they're billy goading, you know, looking oh, off man. the edge of the mountain the rocks down this you know 45 at the top it's even 50 60 Fuck degrees that. at some point and i'm i was just like what you know i yeah and i i'm afraid of heights so i was just like nope i'm just gonna hang on to the start gate thanks and yeah you can keep your weed and yeah, you exactly. can and i'm not i don't even want to look over the edge that's a strange culture in it i remember, remember when we were doing seasons in chamonix and you'd, you'd go to the agreed with d and some of the locals would all be like cane in bongs before they go and do like the north face yeah. of the agreed and deal whatever yeah. just be like how do you, are you do kidding it? me yeah. like what on earth like no for sure but um yeah anyways to each his own and yeah know, yeah oh. well if it works for you <laughs> that's ex yeah. that's exactly it on that's a, yeah. that's exactly it so so, that's so at the, the same announcing. time i got into the announcing yeah um and then the boys from quicksilver heard that i was doing announcing peo lizarazu um and he told and they were looking for an announcer to do the quick cup yeah uh, surf snowboard events which i had competed in two years in a row yeah um as, as a before i started working in the you know I, I guess i was working for onboard at the time so it was but we didn't even cover it you know it wasn't something i was doing as a journalist i was doing it for fun and i, I actually one year i made the semi-finals of the surf contest um and it was me this is my this is my serious claim to fame is, yeah yeah and uh, the, the semi-final number two, this is it lines from Mike Osborne in Surfing Magazine, semi-final number two, uh, the heat sheet read like a, a, a heat from the from the mid-80s with Gary Elkerton, Ross Clark Jones, Robbie Page, and Dave Mailman. I mean, that is a legit lineup right there. <laughs> of course, I got fourth. I was going to say, how'd you do? <laughs> I, made it, I made it to the semi-finals, though. I even scored a perfect 10 on one yeah, wave man. in the quarters. So. Amazing. Yes, that was the uh, that was the event of my life, and uh, and that was where my professional surfing career, ha ha, yeah. stopped. Actually, it didn't. That's another story. But uh, I I took advantage of being president of ASP Europe um, during my four year stint there when I was announcing events when they had open spots on uh, the the Super Series events. They were back and they did step down from the from the World Tour. Um, if there was an open spot, I'd have them put me into a, into a heat. And so I actually was ranked Brilliant. at the, when one of the two years when they were doing the world rankings, I was ranked 450th in the world. That's Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> what a blag. It was, Brilliant. that was exactly it. I was trying to prove that we have a problem here because if I can be ranked 450th in the world as a 35 year old non-competitive surfer, um, we need to tweak the system a little bit. Yeah. So. so Two the, I want to talk about two of the things you mentioned, uh, Quickie yeah. and ASP. So you mentioned in passing that you got the marketing job at Quicksilver. Yes. Um, was this off the back of the announcing? Or? This, okay, so it's, a, yeah, it's a somewhat <coughs> off the back of the announcing, um, but 
also from the onboard thing. The way it happened is I I announced the 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 quick cup for them. This would have been in ninety March of ninety eight um, when I was still at onboard and they had me down that same no it would have been march of 90 march of 97 they had me down the same summer to announce the quick pro junior event um and at the same time philippe verges from arnett asked me um if i would this was in spring of 98 if i would be interested in coming down and taking the director of marketing for Arnett Europe job. And I said, yes, I finished up the season's mags at Onboard. I came back down. I think I started with those guys July 1st of 1998, and I stayed for about six weeks um, for various reasons, but basically because we didn't really see eye to eye um, on... uh, we didn't cut, I don't know. We didn't have the same vision of my role sure. within Arnett. And at the same time though, <clears throat> I had, I had announced one last, um, I had a, one last announcing gig on the Quicksilver pro junior. Yeah. And at that event, I was already working for Arnett. Harry Hodge and Jeff Hackman came up and said, so Dave, you're back in town. You're working for Arnett. Would you be, um, but have you, have you actually signed a contract with them yet? And, and I I kind of thought about it. I'm like, that's weird. I've been working for these guys for six weeks and I, I haven't signed a contract. And they said, well, would you be interested in coming down to the Quicksilver offices one afternoon and, and, uh, and talking with us about maybe uh, joining Quicksilver? And I'm like, Harry Hodge? Yeah, I've known him for a while. And Jeff Hackman, Mr. Sunset. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Probably about know? the time that book was out as well, right? When it was... It was... Uh, yeah, it was It was all happening. At yeah. The, it was all happening at the same time. It, it was. It was exactly at the same time it came out. Yeah. So um, once again, to try and be brief, uh, I went down there. The guys, basically, they just said, how much do you want to come work for us? And I said... As head of European marketing. As head of European marketing, yeah. <clears throat> Um, Mary Chu Darigon was there, but they wanted, this was also while Roxy was happening. So in their minds, they, although Mary Chu was in charge of, uh, marketing for all of of Quicksilver Europe and the nascent Roxy brand along with Jeff Hackman, but Hackman was more of the guru kind of role. He wasn't really hands-on. Yeah. Um, he was, in imagery he was, he was but Jeff he Hackman. was just Jeff Hackman. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly it. Mary Chu was doing all the hard yards. And they wanted to bring me in. My role was to, and they're like, well, what would you like to do? I want to be Jeff's assistant. Right. Okay, we'll make you Jeff's assistant. Amazing. Assistant, how much do you want? I said, I'd like to have like, you know, 40K in the bank at the end of the year. They didn't know what, we were talking in French francs at the time. They, no idea. Anyways, they made me an offer that was a pretty good salary, said you can be Hackman's assistant. Of course, I got in there. And the first thing they did, you know, Jeff like took off to Hawaii for two weeks and they left me with Mary, with Mary Chu and, uh, and we kind of sorted things out amongst ourselves as to who would do what. Um, and then they brought in another lady from uh, who had been working with Bernard Mariette at Timberland, who was their marketing director. They brought her in because they realized that I was really good with with image and ideas and events, and but I didn't have a, a, a you know like admin admin or any kind of serious background to put some structure 
into the department and they thought they needed that too. So, but which was great because that just meant that I could just kind of get on with the job of turning the quick cup from a surf snow event into a surf, into a triple border surf skate snow, um, you know, getting them, they asked me, they said, what, what's the one thing that you don't like about Quicksilver? And, and I said, well, you know, you and Billabong, at least in Europe should switch logos because Quicksilver, it says that you're the board riding company, but Billabong is the one sponsoring snowboarders and skateboarders. And, and you guys should be only a surfer knows the feeling because you're all about surfing and you have like two snowboarders and one skateboarder and you're, and when I came in, the, the Quicksilver skate ad at the time was Omar Hassan doing an ollie off of a off of a, 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 a curb in Southern California over one of those multi old multicolored blow up beach balls. Right. Know? That was like and they had Mark Aziza, um, who's an awesome skater, but same thing. They had him doing you know, something just silly. And those were their two, right. Their two skate ads. So, so did they listen? Yes, they did. They fully did. We right. got a full budget. We started hiring skaters. They gave me, they gave me 600,000 francs to, uh, to do the, the, I sat in the first marketing meeting with them. They said, what are we missing in our budget? And I said, what about a skate event? And they said, where are we going to do it? I said, the Marseille bowl. Right. And they said, how much money do you need? Is 600,000 francs going to be enough? That. that was about nine, 85, 90,000 dollars at the time yeah i said sure of course nowhere near enough but, <laughs> but we made it we made it happen um well you must be so seeing that then these days you know what i mean like, oh yeah yeah i mean i'm disappointed that it's still not quicksilver in marseille yeah but it's still but, ha- but it's still but it's there you yeah know? i'm i'm yeah i'm so nice to, legacy isn't it i'm stoked to watch the events that happen there today and know that you know that that was yeah was Thank it was right time, right place once again. I mean, uh, I was on the Arnett Gonzo tour. Buffalo and Stefan Andre took us all to Marseille, and at the time, I had a I was riding like you know Sector Nine longboards and had a that I shaved my head for had a green Glen Plake mohawk that summer on that was the end of the this this the uh summer camp tour yeah yeah um and and we ended up in marseille and, Hopper, it was awesome. and i i dropped in and i can't you know like i said i'm i'm trying to i'm on a uh yeah dennis hopper exactly <laughs> i'm on a, a on a sector nine longboard trying to pump around the, the marseille bowl and trying to you know do early grab airs off of the teardrop and stuff but right but i was just like this place is insane right they've right. never done a contest here how is that right and uh and you know and and as soon as i got to quick i'm like we need to do a skate contest in marseille because that's the things like you know people are like quicksilver is not a skateboard brand and i'm like it doesn't no we're not but it's the board riding company yeah and this is quicksilver skateboarding yeah and you know that's what and that was my main role when i came in was to do stuff and and then what i always thought to myself my main job is to do things that the core will think is awesome but the general public can understand and will think is awesome as well that's the hardest part of my job yeah well that's that's the hardest part of of market and action sports isn't yeah, it? yeah that's exactly to it. keep to keep the core happy while selling the dream and that's selling it. and not selling out yeah exactly i mean the obvious question that i've got for you there after that story is like where do you get the confidence from to 
you, you know, you're quite blithe about it. You're, you're kind of like, oh yeah, and then you know, and then I'm like, I want to be Jeff Hackman's assistant, and then I'm gonna, you know, you know what I mean, like. But and I, I and I'm imagining people listening to this will be like, some of it sounds quite intimidating. You know what I mean? Like to be given these opportunities and and to have the confidence to embrace them and to make a real success of them, which yeah. you did. So where where does that come from? Where does that confidence come from? For, you, for just just to be like, oh yeah, I can do that. I have I have no idea. Right, I, you just always just, had it. it. I guess it's just hardwired because I never, I never thought I never thought about it. You, you know, didn't I, have just, I just saw the opportunity. I grew up as a kid. You know, I wanted to be a pro surfer when I was, but I like as in junior high school. I wrote to the NSSA like, you know, it's not internet time, internet days. You actually pick up the phone and get a busy signal or nobody at even answers at the National Scholastic Surfing Association. So I'd write them letters and ask them, can you please send me the, you know, entry form for the next contest? And you never hear back from them, yeah. you know? And, and I, I, when I was in high school on the East Coast, I, there was an NSSA event at the wall in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And I don't even know how I found out about it, but I basically just showed up down there and were like, I'm entering, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, lost in the first heat. It was like barely, it was like two feet high. It was like knee high. And I was the biggest kid in the contest. And yeah. So, and not the best surfer, but you know, I wanted to be a pro surfer. So now when I figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be a pro surfer, I'm like, Oh, well, you know what? I'd like to work. I want to work for surfer magazine. Yeah. Well, that never happened either, but I got to work for Onboard. Yeah, and, yeah. So you know, you just... and, and I got to work. I kind of always just looked for kind of the next best thing. And when I was living here, and this is in not in the, my apartment, when I first moved to, to Senos, to Hossiger, when I moved down from, this was in the winter of 94, 95. And I remember, and this was still when, you know, we were looking, reading recaps of the pro events in the magazines three months later. And, and I wrote up, the concept for the Quicksilver for the masters, a masters competition. Yeah. And then I show up at Quicksilver and they've got, you know, they're bringing in Phil Jarrett and we're, and they're like, Dave, what do you think of the idea of doing a master's event? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, like, yeah, of course this is, I dr I've dreamt of doing this as a kid, you know? So it's just, I don't know. I always, it was, I always wanted to work in the, in surfing. Yeah. Cause I love surfing. So I always wanted to work in surfing. So it, that it wasn't even a question of, I didn't even think this isn't possible. I yeah. just went, how do I, it, every time there was an open door, I just put my foot in and, and go for it. And when I applied for the job at Quicksilver, um, or when they came and asked me if I'd like to work for Quicksilver, they're like, well, you know what? There's this guy, Bernard Mariette. He's the the CEO of, of Quicksilver Europe. He's from outside of the surf industry. He doesn't really, you know, he's here to help us with the business aspect of things. And although we know that you're, you've got the job, we have to kind of go through the motions and you have to sit down and interview with Bernard. And I said, okay. I went down and I sit down in this office in this big, this you know, big guy really looks like some kind of corporate, you know, CEO. And he looks at my resume and he's like, you know, it, it's a pretty impressive resume, but you've done a lot of things in a very short time, but you've never really stayed at any of these companies for, it seems like, you know, you're here for a year, then you do this, then you change to do that. And, you know, between, you know, team managing for switch and then working for onboard. And then, you know, and then I know you just came from Arnett where you only worked for six weeks, you know, what's the, if you're going to come work for Quicksilver, we want to know that you're committed. How yeah. long, you know, how long do you think you're going to be here? And 
And I said, well, you guys want, I said, I don't know, five years. And he said, okay, that sounds good. I'll take five years. And, and I literally to the day worked for Quicksilver Europe for five years. Right. <laughs> Hold that thought. I'm going to get a couple of beers. Little non-alcoholic beer break. There um, we go. So ASP then casually mentioned you were president of the ASP. So <clears throat> ASP Europe, I'm not going to go as far as to say, sorry, ASP. Might, no, no, no. Well, cause bad. people might think that, um, that's Brody. Uh, that was Brody Carr at the time. Um, <clears throat> so I, after my five years at Quicksilver Europe, I stepped back. Um, well, I didn't step back. I, I left Quicksilver because there was changes in management and I, and the new role that they offered me, um, did not coincide with what I wanted to be doing at Quicksilver. Right. So, Time for a change. Exactly. Another good skill to have know when to leave. Yeah, no, that's well, that, that, yeah, that was, you know, that was it. We'd, we'd started the, you know, I'd done the bull riders. We'd done the quick cup had, we'd turned it into a triple border. Um, uh, and, and then it went away and we did the Quicksilver slope style pro. Um, you know, when I left, we were, we were, we were one of the main sponsors of Aaron style. We'd had the Quicksilver slope style pro and we had the Quicksilver slope style within the Arctic challenge. Um, and with jet, with the help of Jasper Sanders, yeah. um, the key, we built key the individual. Yeah, exactly. You know, there are, the snowboard team was, you know, Matt Krapel, uh, Mark Kukoski, Jakob Willemsen, uh, Freddie Austbo. Yeah. Um, classic. I mean, legendary Quicksilver era, like yeah. legendary Quicksilver snowboarding era, and which is obviously where my kind of, you know, that's my background, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, Jacob and and Marco. Oh, I those mean. guys were classic. But I mean, we brought them. We brought them up as as kids, and we even brought and we and at the same time we were we were revolutionizing the Quicksilver snowboard outerwear program as yeah. well. Because when we got all these guys, like you couldn't even you couldn't ride for half a day in the in the in the snowboard gear that we were that we were putting on them. And, yeah, it wasn't you know, great, so was it? No, it was horrible. And so we, I mean, literally, yeah. but, and we forced the hand of the, the, the design and production departments as well. And just said, no, we're, we're flying these kids in to, you know, to, to work with you guys. And we also brought in Tommy Toyman in first as a, as a rider. And then as a, and then as the team manager, yeah. um, as well, uh, there are some funny ones too. Uh, one of my favorites is we hired Manuel Palacios as a snowboarder for Spain because we needed a. I know Manuel. We needed a snowboarder I, for Spain, I and then we uh, we didn't know he skateboarded. Yeah, shredder. <laughs> I had a really funny day riding with him about five years ago. He's amazing. Yeah, he's a fantastic, and now he's got the Iran Powder Company. So now he really is. You know his business is is snowboarding now. Yeah. But we hired him as a snowboarder. We didn't know he skated, and then we took him to the. We took him to uh, Bordex, right? In, okay, in, at Battersea Park. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, "You guys know I skate too, right?" Yeah. We're like, "Ah, oh, no, we didn't." And he j jumps on the mini ramp comp where we were doing the best, yeah. the best trick thing and handing out, you know, hundred pound notes as, as we as we went along when people start going off. Well, that's the famous penny in Timberlands kind of era as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a yeah. Exact. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, and Manuel just got on and like, you know, walked off with 
Like, oh, dude, he rides for quick. You're, it's like, we didn't even know he skateboarded. What hilarious. are you talking about? You know? I, when you said that we hired him as a snowboarder, I was like, well, I'm gone. Like, sure, yeah, he's a skater. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then he quickly became one of the stars of the skateboard team. Yeah, yeah for sure. Rips, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, he was incredible. And then we had, um, uh, um, I'm gonna. Sh- I'll f- it'll come back to me. We had a we had a couple of classic English kids as well. Um, on yeah. the quickie team, yeah. We well, had James, didn't you? Yes. Well, we had James. Yes, James as a but as a, as could, a snowboarder, not, you could not, a, not a, a skater, as a kid. <laughs> no, no. Even back then, James wasn't a kid. But um, uh, yeah, it was a, it was awesome. We had some awesome times back then. Yeah. So ASP. So ASP. Um, so when I left Quicksilver, I was obviously doing event announcing, um, and it was the beginning of the webcast uh, era. Yeah. We did the first w- webcast ever, um, actually, at the 2002. I think they'd done maybe one or two before before that, but um, it was it was one of the one of the first times they'd ever webcast the surf events at the 2002 Quicksilver Pro France. Um, I still remember Ma- Manu Zul. Um, uh, and Hobson Machado, the, the the two tech guys that were they're doing the scoring system for the ASP at the time, and they're like, Dave, check this out. Where we can actually, you know, stream the video. And I'm like, do what with what, you know? And and uh, and it was still all pixelated and everything, but it didn't matter. It was awesome because we had Andy Irons and and Nako Paterats in the final, just ripping the you know the beach breaks out just out in front of where we're sitting right now, and and. And we were, you know, and we were doing the commentary on the beach and our commentary was, you know, it was live to the beach, but it was live to the world as well. And it was, you know, at the time it was, oh, this is cool. Yeah. And now it's like, ahead oh, of its time. Yeah. yeah. It, it, well, literally it was, it was the beginning yeah, yeah. of, of surf webcasting, which was the beginning of sports webcasting. Yeah. Because once again, the surf industry is, you know, precursors of many good and bad things in the world, but it, that was one of the really awesome things. And so that was really exciting. And of course, at the time we had no idea how exciting and what it would all become but yeah that was good fun as well so i'd i'd you know obviously with quicksilver i'd announced um all the quicksilver ev- events at the time that air you know we were when i was there we were doing the the air show series there's the quicksilver world air show finals in uh in manly i think it was um you know we had the 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 quicksilver uh, the masters contests at, at La Fetania, um, you know, with Elkerton and Curran and yeah. rabbit and all the, you know, all the, the guys that I grew up, all the boys, you know, exactly yeah. worshiping. And, uh, and so I obviously, when I left Quicksilver wanted to keep announcing. And so I went and worked for every single other company. I, I still, I think I did a few more events with quick. I worked for, on the quick events until 2004 um because obviously one of the highlights of my career was announcing as an as a commentator was announcing the bruce andy final um at the quicksilver pro france at lenore in you know hawaiian style conditions yeah um and yeah that was just that was absolutely mind-blowing those waves and that then the surfing you know and it was it was sunny garcia and andy irons in the first semi-final kelly slater and bruce irons at the peak of their careers yeah, in the second semifinal and then Bruce and Andy in the final. And I was, you know, I, I knew 
both of them well by then so that was that was good that was did that feel like one of those kind of moments oh yeah that you were like yeah this is going to be one for the books kind of thing yeah it was it we we hadn't seen they hadn't seen it surf like that outside for the tour outside of hawaii um since you know since what was the bells contest in I should know that what year it was, but the the massive year at Bell's when Simon Anderson won it on the on the thruster. Yeah, you know the first the first contest win on a three fin surfboard. Yeah, so, yeah. And that so this was literally I mean, it was just it was massive. Yeah, and perfect. And the event to match. The, and the event the, as the well. Yeah, yeah, match. that yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, Quicksilver yeah. was you know throwing everything at the, uh, you know they re, they went full on with the or with the organization and then it didn't get much better than that at, yeah. at, at that point in time especially that was also harry hodge really driving all of these events um he was the, he's somebody who's within the industry is fairly well known but behind this you know but people outside don't really know who harry was and he was the visionary behind if it wasn't if it wasn't for harry i wouldn't have worked for them um hackman probably wouldn't have still had a career with Quicksilver at that point because he had his ups and downs with heroin addiction and Harry was one of the people that was a driving force behind making sure that Jeff was, you know, still in the industry and still probably alive. And then, you know, he's the one who gave me carte blanche to, to do everything that I got to do. And then the Quicksilver pro France was, was Harry's deal as well. He managed to get that off of, uh, off of rip curl at the time. And so I, Loved announcing. I knew that when I left Quicksilver, that's what I was one of the things I really wanted to concentrate on. And luckily, <clears throat> I had done a good enough job at it that all the other brands wanted me to announce their events too. So I, um, I was in there with the Rip Curl guys. Got really tight with the Rip Curl guys, the O'Neill guys, um, the Billabong guys that always read Pinder and Carl Weiser. Had always been friends of. Friends of mine, Carl Weezer. Sorry, I call him the wise man. So, <laughs> um, so I worked on the the Billabong events in Mundaka. Um, I still, like I said, did a couple of the Quicksilver Pro Frances. Um, started doing stuff with Rip Curl, the, the Super Series that they were still doing back at the at the time in the middle of August. Um, and and then one thing led to another, and I was working for all of the companies and with and really tight with the with the ASP guys and Francois Pio was the president of ASP Europe, which was actually a, a licensee of ASP International back then. And Francois had been doing it for, and Francois was one of the founding father of, of Rip Curl Europe. Um, and, and he was just, you know, he was over it. He was kind of writing it, you know, just kind of sending it in um, at, at the, at the end of the whole thing. And, and the next general assembly came up and they, you know, and they said, well, would you be interested in, in putting your hand up for the, for the presidency job? And I said, sure, why not? <laughs> you know, I, I could, once again, I saw the opportunity, like when I came into Quicksilver, I saw the opportunity to change things. I saw things that I didn't think were right within the ASP Europe, the way the tour functioned over here and the way uh, even ASP international was, was functioning and, 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 and it was, and it was motivating. Cause once again, my love for, I guess my love for surfing, um, was, I said, yeah, if I can, you know, help actually make things better for the, for the tour, for the judges, for the surfers, 
for the administrators, um, for everything. So I said, sure, why not? And I, so I put my hand up and there was nobody, maybe there was someone who ran against me. I can't remember, but I right. mean, it was basically, it was kind of a done deal. Sure. Cause I think whoever, I think there were a couple other names in the hat, but I think even those guys just kind of just did it because they didn't want to just say, okay, it's yours, Dave, you know? So yeah, they, yeah. but they were, I, uh, I can't, like I said, I can't remember who it was, but I know that it was, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that like, if you want it, even Francois was just like, you know, they kind of brought me in and I couldn't vote on anything because I wasn't even a member yet right. of the, of ASP Europe. And, uh, and then, but then it was just like, okay, time to vote. And, uh, then, okay, it's you, Dave. <laughs> so, right. All right. Well, where do we go from here? Right. And, so did you have a, a clear idea about what was needed there in the same way that you, it sounds like you did with Quickie? Um, less so because it was more, you know, the devil's in the details yeah. and it was a lot of, there were a lot of details and I had ideas as well, but it's different because it, ASP Europe, it's an it was it's a sporting association, so there's members and I was gonna say, every it? and we had like 15 events back then, and yeah. every single event is a member and has a vote. I was going to say in the hateful phrases, a lot of stakeholders. That's ex yes, yeah. that's exactly it. And yeah. uh, stake what? That was a term that I didn't know. Once again, I didn't have a, a yeah. What are them? A business yeah. background yeah, or anything yeah. like that. So I was like, a, a, what are these called? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Event organizers. Yes, stakeholders, Dave. Okay, all right. Well, whatever you are. Yeah. Um, let me convince you that, you know, your event shouldn't be one of the top tier events and you should actually spend less money on, uh, spend less money on your licensing, on your, uh, what was it? Yeah. The licensing fee, um, to be a six star event, you should spend more money. You should be a four star event, but do better things around it for the surfers and for the they're looking at me like, but if I'm not a six star event, then I'm not part of the TV package and I'm not yeah. part of, like, but yeah, but it'll be better for the sport and for our tour over here. If you take a step back, do things better and then step back up. So then obviously, you know, events are like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Yeah. You yeah. Know? Wow. That is a tough, a tough sell, isn't it? It was, it was a very, I imagine a very tiring, that must be a role that you've only could only do for a few years, right? Well, there was a, I think it was a four-year mandate, and that sounds at like the a... end of my mandate was when the uh, was when ASP International was buying back the was taking back the licenses from the different territories that they did that they weren't running directly, right? That's and I and I stepped out at that point because I was good friends with Brody Carr, and Brody was the, obviously the CEO of of ASP International and was in charge of taking those licenses back. And it was a very ugly time uh, to be a licensee territory. Sure. And uh, and so that was another reason why I was like, you know what? I've been there, done that. I've done what I could do. I, the judges got better pay. Um, you know, the, the, we raised prize money. Uh, we, we added more events. We, you know, better structure. We added better structure to the pro junior circuit. We did a... We did an end of year, um, you know, prize awards ceremony and, and and party night, just like they did for international. We crowned European champions. We there was we did a, a a lot of really good things, but in the four years that I was there, it was like nah, after I knew there wasn't anything more I could do 
um, and I knew that it was the beginning of the end anyway, so I didn't. You knew when to leave. Yeah, that's exactly it. Once yeah. again, I didn't raise my hand again to do it. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like a job with built-in burnout, though. You know what I mean? That yeah. just sounds like... And it's and it's an unpaid position. It's yeah. a volunteer position. Yeah. But I got to surf in a lot of events. So. <laughs> and you got... That, that was... It got me... Uh, got you ranking. Yeah, got me ranking. Got me up to Scotland, one of my Thurso... Yeah, you know, I got classic. to surf Thurso East. That was a classic little yep. event, that, wasn't it? fantastic my my all-time favorite classic. the cold water classic yeah started out as the highland open yeah and uh and then uh became the became the cold water classic yeah. and the first event of course won by the british bulldog russell winter classic there you go it's fantastic yeah, which makes me think sorry i'm just gonna go back to board x and uh and our when Pete King was our skateboarder. Pete. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Pete, if you if you'd listen to this ever. Pete's I, another one that a lot of people are like. Fantastic human being. I yeah. love him. Everybody loves Pete. Yeah. I don't know him that well, but he's one of those people yeah, that great everybody speaks very yeah. highly of. Great guy. You know, like the classic wonderful human being kind of exactly. vibe, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And when I knew when I got to Quick and we started building the skate team, he was one of the first guys that I knew that like UK, let's get Pete King. Right, right. Yeah. So with your view of of the you know the surf industry and this especially the competitive side of the surf industry what what do you see now what you know when you look at the current setup obviously there's been some huge changes since then yeah you know? i um, mean there were too many to list now yeah but you've got the view you've got the perspective you've got the experience and you know we we phrased it earlier like how do you keep the core happy while selling to the mainstream without selling out yeah that is a key challenge they've got now right well that's exactly it um so where do you how do you see it well sophie goldschmidt actually the new ceo of of uh of the world surf league um in in one of her conference calls with the the lucky few of the of uh the surf journalists that that she speaks to or that she's allowed to speak to um she actually identified that as being one of their key problems um uh maybe it's not a problem but one of their key issues uh and how are they how are they going to do it i i think they're they've made it they've one of the beautiful things about pro surfing back in the day was that it was professional surfing but it was still surfing and now they're trying to make it professional sport and to an extent to some extent there it, it it's it, and it sounds really cliche but it, it's losing a bit of it of its soul yeah um having said that there's there's still on the on the internet i'm in in touch with uh i don't know there's a there's a group of guys that we were on the we used to go on PostSurf, the website that was done by lewis samuels and we had these long discussions about life the universe and everything but especially you know life and the universe as it revolves around surfing and um and these guys it was you know the first one of the surf first surf blogs and these guys are hardcore surfers and a lot of them hate pro surfing but they watch every single contest and have very and are very opinionated about pro about pro surfing and about the asp back in the day and now about the the WSL, and now a lot of those guys are on Twitter. And well, I was about to say you love getting stuck in on that, don't you? I'm I well, I watch the to. I watch yeah. the comps, and I and I watch my Twitter feed at the same time. Um, yeah, there's some vocal 
voices, let's say. Definitely. But the, and the, but these are the core, and these are the yeah. people who are talking about that need to be pleased. Yeah, to keep the soul. To keep the soul in the whole thing, and it's it's losing the soul a little bit. And I'll take the example of, I don't know if I should do this or not, but Joe Turpel. Joe is, everybody who watched the WSL contests knows Joe Turpel. And Joe came in at about the time as I was moving out of doing the doing the commentary. And he came in because the, uh, when it was Billabong was sponsoring the event in Brazil, um, the announcers that were supposed to go down and do the event suddenly, you know, got stomach flu and couldn't fly like 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 Kelly and Parco and a lot of the top guys would all of a sudden have a, a knee injury and yeah. have to pull out of the event. Yeah, yeah. You know, they just and so and so Joe had been doing some of the local events in California and I don't know exactly how it happened, but one thing led to another and Joe Turpel was holding down the webcast from the Billabong Rio Pro by himself pretty much. And he did a fantastic and he did a fantastic job. It was a, a breath of fresh air. But in the same way, I think that maybe the judging criteria has people talk about the judging criteria stifling the the true, you know, the best surfing from guys like Dane Reynolds and John John Florence and and you know even the Gabriel Medinas and you know they 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 surf better when they're free surfing because they don't you know they're not worrying about being judged and how do we make it so that we actually have a free surf contest. Um, with within you know a professional competition thing and and so the 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 pro surfing is kind of and with the WSL even more so than the ASP days kind of you know has has made it bland has kind of sucked the life out of it and the same thing happened for me with with Joe he I thought he was a breath of fresh air when he came in and now it's you know it's he's just very programmed and sanitized repetitive. yeah and sanitized yeah. that's it you know it's that that was yeah that's the word i was looking for but all is sanitized and and re, and repetitive and and i just you know and I, I used to be i used to work events and he's he is he's paired up with martin potter and and i used to work events and i kind of brought pots in to to work on the the rip curl pro search events and pots and i would do the the announcing together on on those events um and you know and 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 doing commentary with martin potter is is, is a fantastic thing the guy has a wealth of knowledge he's an amazing surfer he's you know one of the original air air guys and and at the time the fastest you know guy to ever win a the, the year he won the world the world tour he did it like halfway through the season it was dusted like he was champ you know so yeah and he's he's an amazing individual and and announcing and he's an amazing commentator and to it pains me to see people on the net today commentating you know making comments about you know oh it's pots and terpel you know i'm turning the sound off and even you know me to an extent like i don't there's sometimes it's it's hard to it's hard to listen to and and you know and like i said both those guys utmost respect for both of them but sometimes it's you know it's the san the it, like you say it's the it, surfing has been sanitized to a point where sometimes you don't even want to you don't even want to listen to it you don't even want to watch it and that's kind of for me the the surf ranch event is the is the same thing it's 
you know, they think that's their in into the Olympics and that the Olympics is going to be the great panacea of, but look <laughs> work, at- Work really well in snowboarding. Well, that's exactly it. That's what I, exactly what I was going to say is that, you know, it, it, open your eyes, surfing, look at what's happened around you. I mean, and you're never going to know how, no matter how good you make that artificial wave and the, and the Slater pool is amazing and the wave garden cove, the- pool is amazing i've you know i've surfed it i'm a i am a fan of wave pools i will go i'll spend money to go surf wave pools no problem there i have no problem with wave pools but that format of you know over the course of three or four days or whatever it is there were six waves that were worth watching but i'll sit and watch an event like the quicksilver pro france just because you never know what the ocean's going to throw at you and yeah. that's so the sanit the sanitization again of of, of surfing and 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 it didn't help snowboarding. Yeah, I mean everybody which, knows who Sean White is, but it hasn't helped sales. Which changed it? It's changed. It's, it's fundamentally cha yeah. changed the culture, which brings us, you know. But it hasn't nice. helped the sport. It's changed the culture, but it hasn't helped. Has it helped any of the brands? No, no, that's exactly it. No, I think, not at all. You know, I think Jake Burton back in the day should have should have told all his riders he should have followed terrier's lead and told everybody none of you are going to the olympics if you want to ride for my company anymore yeah and he did the exact opposite and he also should have told sean to shut it and support the ticket to ride and not try and have it both ways which is jake tried to have it both ways as well because at the same time as they were doing the we were trying to get the ticket to ride going and i'm getting a bit heated here because Another thing that I did was being one of the co-founders of the yeah, Tech Drive yeah. World Snowboard Tour. Um, they were tr they were trying to do the Burton Global Open Series at the sa at the same time, so they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. And it's like you should have used all that energy and put it into supporting independent snowboarding and shut down the Olympics, and and helped grow the sport. And instead, now snowboarding is the olympics yeah there's no credible alternative the, the world the world's it's not, i don't even know what it is anymore the world snowboard federation is combined with with uh with what was let with the world snowboard tour yeah um and they're all they are is an independent ranking system that the fist doesn't even take into account so they're they're completely irrelevant yeah well there's no like no credible alternative it's worse than when the isf blew up yeah it is it is because it, because there is literally no, nothing of substance on the core side, basically. There's no, there's no cohesion. There's no cohesive culture. No, we're there's back nothing. to we're, we're back to the story we, is it, now the Olympics. That's exactly it. That's and, what it is. And I mean, look at the, like the 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 European Open and the and the and the U.S. Open. I mean, yeah, as a snowboarder, they're still prestigious events. But the European Open is now the Lax Open, so it's not even. Burton anymore so they still get guys to go but it doesn't have the near close to the impact it did before and even the US Open doesn't have the impact that that it used to have either and it should be that should be the premier event in snowboarding yeah, it's yeah. not they've lost it it's it's the Olympics and even the X Games you know that and the do tour and all these things i mean do they even you know they still exist but they don't have any now it's once every four years yeah, yeah. the olympics and it's and it's done and that's why i think the wsl to get back to what's pro surf how is pro surfing blowing it yeah 
letting themselves go to the Olympics well, because they're 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 letting you're letting the fox into the hen house. Yeah, and it's, it's like you say, it's not like there's not a very obvious cautionary tale to learn from. You know, oh, there, of course there is. I mean, and you know, I wrote the article about it in one yeah, yeah, a few yeah. years back. Yeah, yeah. You know, you the, called the, it the state of snowboarding today, and yeah. and and I said that's the beautiful thing about surfing is that they don't need the they no. don't need the Olympics. But they can have it, and they're going to have it, and that, and it's the beginning of the end. Yeah, which is maybe a good thing because maybe you know, surfing to maybe it needs to you have to burn down the house and it has to rise out of the ashes again. You know, maybe 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 that's what needs to happen. But they're diluting, they're diluting their product by going to the Olympics, and you know, and we love them or hate them, but the Olympics. It is what it is, but it's it is the the controlling overlord yeah. of international sport. And once you give in, bow down to the Olympics, that's it. Forget it. You're yeah, you done. can't you can't go back. No. So yeah, we can't really can't really talk if um, without addressing probably the biggest thing that's happened to you recently. If you <laughs> if you're up for talking to about uh, that, the birth of my children. Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> there's, there's that obviously. Um. You, so it's five years you were saying yes since, exactly since you, were, since you were diagnosed august 23rd 2013 right mr mailman you have leukemia sure yeah. so what was it that um how did it start like what, how did it what was the first sort of manifestation um both uh my wife priscilla and i had had um like a summer flu kind of right and we got over it and then I started kind of feeling a little bit, just a little bit tired. I was flu symptoms again. Yeah. And I thought, Oh, this is weird. Maybe I didn't, I didn't, you know, beat it the, the last time. Right. So I kind of took it easy for a few days and, and started feeling better again. Uh, and we went out to dinner, um, at, uh, at Louvine at Phil Richardson's restaurant here in Senos. Yeah. Um, Sushi Phil, who's another industry legend. Yeah, that's yeah. A, it's a story for another day. But yeah. anyways, uh, so we went out. Um, Axel uh, Poporte was in town, so we went and met up with Axel and and his wife Jesse and had a had a really nice dinner and you know nice bottle of wine and then around ten ten thirty I started feeling tired again. So I said, you know what, let's let's take off. Let's let's head home and grab the kids and packed everything up, went back, went to bed, got up the next morning and, and, uh, Priscilla like just looks at me with this look on her face. Like, you know, something's really wrong. And she's like, look at you. What's that in your mouth? Look at your mouth. And I get up and I go and look in the, in the mirror in the kitchen and there's just blood crusted, dried blood all over my lips, all over my gums, my teeth, my tongue. And she's a, luckily is a doctor. <laughs> right. And uh, I knew there was a reason I married a doctor. Right. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic woman. I love her to death. But the back of my mind, I don't know, you know, one of those things your unconscious must have known. But um, no, that's definitely not that. I, I married her because I love her, love her, loved her dearly at the time and love her even more dearly now. Um, but she realized that with that, that was nothing good. There could be many things, but none of them were good. Is it because leukemia is your body stops being able to 
produce white blood cells. Is yes, that what it, yeah, is, that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, it's right? basically your immune system. Yeah. Is just starts going. Yeah. So th- and and that would be a man a symptom of of that deeper issue. Yeah. Effectively. Ex- right. Exactly. So um. So she's trying to hold it together, but it's freaking. She goes, listen, um, goes out, writes me a. Uh, a prescription to go get a blood test immediately calls the, you know, obviously and she, this time she was a doing a general medicine. She was a general practitioner in Hossiger. So she knew all the labs and she calls the lab and says, you know, um, my husband's coming in. It's like nine thirty, ten o'clock on a Saturday morning. So go into the lab, um, get the blood test and come home. And, uh, and I'm, you know, kind of like, oh, I feel all right. You know, it's, it's, I don't know what the deal is, but yeah, obviously blood in your mouth. It's a bit, it's a bit scary. So, and about 45 minutes later, we get the phone call from the lab. Um, <clears throat> it's leukemia. Uh, wow. The, the, the ambulance is on the way. Uh, the, the, the hematology unit in Bayonne, uh, has been informed and, um, they'd also called the, my wife's partner um, in her practice who was coming over just to kind of for, you know, support. And the ambulance showed up at the house and, you know, in the meantime, we're packing, you know, packing a bag to, to take down to the hospital and they drove down to the hospital. My wife's partner drove her down as well. Um, and we get to the hematology unit and we kind of wait like, oh, Mr. Mailman, okay, we've been waiting for you. Put me in a room. And the head of the hematology unit um, came in and uh, a lovely doctor. And once again, these are notes that I should have taken before, but I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting her name right now, but a fantastic woman. Yeah. Very, very, very smart. Luckily, one of the best hematologists in France, if not in the world. And she... Uh, she said, Mr. Mailman, I just want you to know that you're young, you're in good health, and you're not going to die. Right. But you're not going to have a very good time either for the next few months or even couple so they of could, years. So they knew they could, they could cure it. There was, I think 15 years ago, there was a, a 5% chance I would have survived. And, and in, that, in that time, the you know, medicine had made you know leaps and bounds forward and it was kind of the opposite it was a 95 percent chance survival rate and a five percent chance that i would die um so or at least that's what they told me <laughs> um, but they you know that's the i think that's the beginning of it um as far as fighting any any terminal potentially terminal illnesses to and cancer or anything else that you know major diseases is is having the right mindset from the beginning and, right and even to this day i haven't gone and looked up the figures or whatever but she told me i wasn't going to die so i just took that i took her on her word i'm not dying so well then if i'm not going to die how do we make it so that i get well and i don't even think not even getting well but how do we make it so that just this ends as quickly as possible right you know how do i get back to um, eating good food, drinking good wine, and you know, going and having a good time with the with the family, and uh, yeah. and you know, rate getting back to raising my kids and doing activities with uh, with my wife, and you know, going and having fun with my friends. So that's kind of and 
yeah, and and then they the, some girl comes in and you know shoves an IV tube into my one of my veins, and I was. The worst thing about the whole thing is I still hate needles, but at, at that time I was I literally had a, a, you know, phobia of needles. I cannot stand people taking blood, even getting like you know shots or anything like that. So, and I. <laughs> There are a lot of needles <laughs> involved <laughs> involved yeah. in the whole thing. Um, how do they how do they treat it? Well, the there's chemotherapy. So they started me on chemo even without knowing exactly what kind of leukemia it was on that first day because they had to do tests to figure out. I think there's three different kinds of leukemia, three or four. Um, once again, I should know this better, but it's kind of one of those things that I knew when I was going through it, yeah. and then once you're it's kind of behind you even though it's still always with you but you, I kind of don't want to think about it <laughs> sure um, but um, once they've before without knowing what kind of leukemia it was they started me already on a basic chemotherapy um, which I believe was pills for the first couple of days just to get you started um, and then once they found out which one it was then they put you on a, a specific chemotherapy uh, treatment uh, regimen right and oh yeah it's all I'm trying to think think back to this. it's kind of not it's not not making me emotional but there a lot of stuff kind of happened all at the same time um so they figured out what it was they start you on chemo and they try and treat it with chemo and if they and if it reacts to the chemo well enough then you can then just move on to radiation therapy and after that, it's done. If it doesn't react to the chemo correctly, then you have to have a bone marrow transplant. And to get a bone marrow transplant, you have to have a bone marrow donor. Luckily, um, being Caucasian and you know European background, there, there's a large pool of donors um, in Europe, especially in Germany. I now have German blood. Thank you. <laughs> to my anonymous uh, bone marrow donor um, and in the States as well. But, uh, and people ask, well, are you going back to the States? No, no, no. The, the treatments here in Europe and in France are, are just fine, maybe even better than the U.S. So, um, yeah. And so I, they started me, they figured out what kind of leukemia it was and they started me on the, on the chemo. Um, I kept hoping that it could just be chemo and then radiation because there is a possibility of, your body re reacting poorly. It's like one in a million, but you never know. There, you can die from the uh, bone marrow transplant. Luckily, I didn't. Um, and they found a marrow donor quickly for me. So once the once they figured out the chemo didn't work, I wasn't. I couldn't have radiation therapy. Um, they uh, they put me in onto the waiting list for a, for a donor and. And I got a donor, and, and this all happened between, I was August, what was it, August 23rd, 2013. I got out of the hospital on my brother's birthday on October 8th um, after the, f the first round of chemo. And then I was two weeks in, two weeks out, all the way from beginning of October through the Christmas holidays and until the very beginning of February. Then I went in back, and I in the... While I was in the hospital, the first time I was in the um, the sterile room, so you know the, you can only have I think I was allowed four visitors. My wife um, 
some other friends of ours, Julia Bachelot, my my business partner, longtime business partner here in the southwest of France, uh, Max Chu, um, and and we were, and then and who else was there? I can't believe I'm blanking. Uh, there was four, and Pat, uh, Pat, I'm, oh geez, Pat Gavigan. Once again, it just kind of, I don't know, it's a, it, it, the memory is really weird. I, even when I tell the story, I'm sure if, when my, when my wife Priscilla listens to this, she's going to be like, that wasn't the way it happened because we have these arguments about what actually happened or right. didn't happen. And then we both lived through it, but yeah. each of on you know, had our own experience of it. Yeah, of course. And her memories aren't quite the same as mine, but long story short, I was in, I was in a, a sterile room where I could only have, you know, visitors that would come in, you know, completely face masked and head to toe and yeah. had to go through sterilization, everything in Bayonne, which with just a tiny little sliver of blue sky out the, the top of this window for six weeks and that was horrible wow um and then once i got out i was two weeks in for chemo because they had to keep your my immune system low enough the the idea being when you have a bone marrow transplant they put you back they put you on another heavy chemo regimen to basically bring your immune system down to zero and that's when they can put your new the bone marrow the donor marrow in um, and so I went back into a sterile environment for another four or five weeks in Bordeaux. And then I got out and we stayed in Bordeaux for another two months because I had to be, you know, every day or every second day kind of back to the hospital so they could check up on me. So it was a, it was a very, yeah, it was a testing experience to say the least. But, um, uh, I was lucky to have lots of loving friends and family and I was also from the very beginning I was very upfront and open with everybody about what was happening because you know I've been I have a hard time considering myself a public figure but I I have a a relatively high profile in yeah, our in know, our world yeah. in our world yeah. that's exactly it and I have a lot of Facebook friends and, yeah, exactly. and other friends. So first thing I did was put the whole thing out on Facebook. Well, like, I mean, we, as you said at the start, we've only met personally a couple of times, but we've been Facebook friends for a long time. And obviously I kind of followed the whole thing on Facebook. And that, that was what I was very impressed with, to be honest, the fact that you were so open about it and you um, very publicly um, went through the whole thing in, through that medium. But you, the, the positivity that you mentioned seemed to be there from the start. And uh, yeah, I found that really admirable. I found that really, um, yeah, quite humbling really to watch because obviously it was such an awful experience and such a, you know, life-changing experience. But you did seem to outwardly cope with it as well as could as anyone could really. I mean, was that how, you know, you, and you said earlier that's from the start you were like, well, I'm determined to have this mindset. Was that, was yeah. that an easy thing to do? I mean, it sounds like almost like a really like facile question really, but... I don't know, they kind of... I still to this day don't know if they tricked me into it or not, but you know, the, the doctor's saying you're not going to die. Well, yeah. if I'm not going to die, then let's just, you know, that's, that's let's the get thing, it over with. That's then, the thing, shall to, we? That's the thing to hold on to. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. And I had a, you know, I had a lot of support. My wife and I had some really heavy heart to heart, you know, talks. There was, there were lots of tears. 
um, God, no doubt in the in the background, you know, behind behind closed doors, um, and some very you know some very good um, heart you know deep deep discussions about you know who we were, what we wanted to do with our life, and yeah, the, you know, just yeah, some heavy some really heavy stuff, but. Um, I had support from all from literally from, you know, around the around the world, which and from people who I knew really well, from people who I didn't know well at all from and from, you know, and and I also found out that different people react to things like that in very different ways, because I had there were some people that I, you know, consider really good friends of mine, but who just couldn't even I didn't hear from. Yeah. You know, the whole through the entire ordeal, maybe even, you know, two, three two and a half years right um because i found out afterwards just because they just didn't know what to say yeah and and you know and i don't I obviously i hold no grudges whatsoever you know but um it's it, you learn a lot about people and you learn a lot about yourself um and it was and i tried everything you know it's like i had people obviously i was in the system in france so i couldn't try like you know cannabis oil and a lot of the alternative remedies but um I had people, I had, you know, my wife's a, a Buddhist and I had, you know, a, her whole Buddhist prayer group, you know, praying for me. I had, I had Phil Williams and the whole Christian surfer community, uh, rooting for me. Um, and you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a religious guy. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, it's, I believe in it, in the idea of creation, maybe, but I don't believe in a god because who's right? Is it the Judeo-Christian God? Is it Allah? Is it I, you know? I don't. But the uh, the crew from Christian Surfers were uh, amazing, and Phil Williams is a <laughs> uh, God put him on this earth for a reason. <laughs> He's a fantastic human being, and he's become a really, really good friend. We don't see each other that often, but I love him to death. Um, Maurice Rebex um, is another person who I didn't even know. I, it's funny, a lot of people I didn't know had had, had cancer in the past. Um, you find out about it afterwards, and, uh, and Maurice is a very, very talented photographer. Um, I knew him through our mutual friend Bruno Desbochet, who unfortunately is no longer with us because he died of, of I believe it was pancreatic cancer um, a few years ago. And, uh, and I found out that Maurice had had uh, cancer as well. And he, you know, just from really behind the scenes, just kind of started sending messages every now and then. And really like, you know, things happen. There's, there's different levels and of connection in the universe and and damn every time maurice calls me it's like wow i knew you were going to call me and i know why you did you know the guy is once again amazing human being who i you know just love to death and we were i knew him beforehand but um you know now he's like he's he's you know, in my, in the world, he's my cancer mentor kind of. And, uh, yes, really just, um, really helped me kind of, you know, work through things. Um, 
you know, Jasper Sanders, who was, was a great um, friend of mine for a long time, uh, even before we were working at Quicksilver, but we had some fantastic experiences together at Quick, and he was another one who was always kind of, not always there, but just the right, you know, right place, right time. The, right just, time. the, the phone would ring, and Jasper would be like, "Oh yeah, man, I you know I needed I needed this." So yep. it was, uh, um, and some other guys, Andy Higgins, Simon Wooten as well, were you know really kind of always there at the at the right time and I've been friends with them for a very long time, but just certain people, you know, really stepped up. Um, not necessarily people I've are my best friends. Um, but, uh, and then Max Chu as well, who was one of my best friends along with being my business partner. And he, uh, and you know, he bent over backwards for, for me. So I, I had really, I had a tight support crew. Um, and, but I also had support crew from, from around the world um, and a lot from the world of snowboarding, actually the free ride world tour um, guys from the uh, f former riders from the, from the extreme from uh, they really, uh, you know, guys like Alex Coudre, um just uh, the, 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 the list goes on Cyril Nerive, uh, that whole, but the whole crew, you know, the, they really, um, they really kind of, they really stepped it up and, and other people who I didn't, who I'd never even met guys that I knew from when I was doing the Epic TV surf reports, um, guys like, uh, Rocky Romano, um, uh, just, you know, on their, their webcasts or they're doing events. And, you know, this one goes out to Dave mailman who, you know, we hope is watching us and, and, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have to do that. I don't, the guy didn't even know me. We'd exchanged emails a couple of times. I'd talked about some of his stuff on my, on my show, you know, and that was, and, you know, that's a, a big word for what I was doing. My, my, my video podcast out of the corner of my, uh, of my garage, you know, <laughs> hey, it was another, another ahead of its time thing that uh, you, might, you might be taking the piss out of yourself, obviously, but <laughs> everyone's got a podcast now, Dave. Uh, yeah, that was a good, that was a good one. That was good fun, but that may very well have been actually, uh, you know, cause I was a bit bitter about, um, so one of the first questions I asked the doctors was how did how did I get leukemia and they're like we don't know. Right. Bad bad blood literally that's what leukemia is is bad blood and I they're like we don't know. And I've recently been, you know, listening and there's studies that sh studies and theories out there that about people's mental attitude and illness and how, you know, if you are a negative thinking person, you can open and you're not taking care of your body or your mind, you can open yourself up to, um, to serious illness. And I, I, you know, I was, when I was doing that, that, the, the Epic TV surf report, you know, the video podcast, it was, uh, I wasn't interviewing anyone. I was just looking at what was going on in the world of surfing and give, and putting my own spin on it and 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 writing the script and recording myself and then and and sourcing images and I'd send everything to the guys in Chamonix and there's a couple of video editors there that would just put the whole thing together um but I was I I I I was I wasn't in a I wasn't in a good place when I was doing that I was staying up really late at night we were doing like two or three a week yeah I remember and it's a lot of output it was huge and I, I was staying up late night I was you know drinking lots of beers and wine and whiskey and and I still 
smoked weed a little bit back then, but not too much because you couldn't do that and yeah. smoke because it was just that was just wasn't happening. But um, um, and I but I was I was you know I was negative. I was at home with you know two with two young kids. I wasn't traveling anymore. I wasn't I wasn't doing the events anymore. Um, and 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 I and yeah, and I I think I let the negativity kind of take take control and and i i honestly think that it was just my body's way of saying hey this is i've had enough um and my my body and my mind's way of the like you can't go on like you can't keep doing this and i think that's why i got sick and it and it and it is you know and it's changed me and i have and i find myself every now and then kind of falling back into the old rhythm but i it's you know that it's like after everything i've gone through i can't let myself go back get lazy and go back to that headspace you know that that i that i was in when i when i got sick because i'm pretty much convinced today that that's that's what it was a major part of it yeah for sure was was understanding it in that way like a really important part of getting over it no i didn't understand it that way until until after i right. don't think i didn't don't, don't think i came to the realization but because also because i didn't want to my wife knew it right priscilla knew it but i didn't know it right. or, and i or i knew it subconsciously but i didn't want to admit it yeah and we still have those that discussion today you know she's like watch how much you drink and watch how much you know you're yeah you know you're just you got to take care of yourself you got to watch what you eat you know you got to and uh cuz i you know i'm i'm <laughs> it's funny you would I don't know if people think it or not, but I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit lazy. I like to, like, you know, yeah, you the, sound the, it. The, <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's what everyone's going to be thinking the, if you listen the, to this. The path of least resistance, you know, in 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 life, and I, you know, I and I enjoy eating good food, and I enjoy, you know, having, you know, four or five glasses of wine with dinner, and it's obviously yeah. not every night. I can't allow myself to do that anymore, but um, you know, but I. Like trying to get through the cancer was also what the, one of the first things is when do I get to drink <laughs> of my first glass of wine? That yeah. was, you know, and uh, that was literally one of the things I kept asking the doctors and Priscilla's like, oh, just, you know, give it a rest, will ya? <laughs> and it's like, no, but I really, I need to, you know. Yeah, you I, need, need to have something positive to focus yeah, on. Yeah, no for doubt. sure. And then surfing as well. And that's been another thing since... That's been rather frustrating, but I've learned to live with as well is that, you know, after your body, after what you go through, um, it's, it's hard as a normal human being, you know, I, I look at, I look at Sasha Ham and what he's come back from. And I'm like, damn, if Sasha can come back and be riding, you know, maybe not as well as he was before, but back to a, you know, serious level. He's all charging, doing the Valley Blanche and Chamonix and whatever with yeah. the boys. And, you know, it's like, I can do that too, you know? And it's like, no, I can't actually. I'm, you know, that's been frustrating because now, but for surfing, I'm, I'm limited to like the head high zone is kind of even like the shoulder high zone, but it's cool. Cause like this summer I spent tons of time at the beach, pushing my kids into waves and it's yeah, a whole yeah. nother, you find a different way to enjoy everything, but it's a, it's a constant uh, not struggle, but a constant um, journey of finding, you know, new ways to enjoy things. But as we get old too, the doctors, I, I tell them, I'm like, you know, I can't do my, my arms don't work the same way before my muscles, my, you know, I'm, 
I got got to wear glasses now. My hair is thinning, and you know, damn cancer and and chemotherapy. And they're like, Mister Mailman, you're you're aging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. There is that. Yeah. So it's it's um, you know, it, yeah. But it was a is a it it's a it's obviously it's a life altering experience. But I you know, and it might once again sound a bit cliche, but I think at the end of the day, I'm a probably a better person for it well that, i mean this also sounds like a crass question but i was going to ask you can you see it positively because it sounds like you know you've you've what you've just talked about was you, you know finding a positive from the experience basically so is it something you could have a look at positively yeah uh like i said you know it might be cliche but i think i'm a better person yeah. for it so, afterwards so I, th- I may have very well if it, if it hadn't happened i i probably <laughs> could very possibly have ruined my marriage by just the the you know the life path that i was on with uh just being negative and 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 drinking too much and not exercising enough and not going surfing and not uh, not in you know enjoying being a father as much as i should have um because I, I, I won't say that I didn't enjoy being a father, but I definitely was, you know, I saw the kids more as a break than a, you know, than a something to, you know, make my life more positive. Right. Know? That's was, Frank. They were holding me back. Yeah. I mean, and I can, well, I can say it because I've, you know, I've discussed it with my wife and she, for sure, um, it was, yeah. But now, like, I mean, I, you know, I love my kids. My six-year-old, he makes he's tough <laughs> and we we have a little our own little competition going on but um yeah and funny it kind of brings us all around to like the, the conference that i was just doing the other day there was a guy talking about auto hypnosis and mental preparation and you know and he just talked about you know putting a positive spin on everything even the way just the way you talk to your kids you know don't tell them you can't do that yeah because it's you should do this, yeah. you know, do it this way. And, and even that just, you know, you learn, I, I learned something new every day and I learned that the other day and, and I've been practicing what that guy was preaching, um, for the last, uh, 48 hours. And, uh, and my wife's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so she, not, she sounds like a smart woman. She's a very smart woman. Yes. Much smarter than I she am. Sounds like but, a very uh, uh, emotionally perceptive woman. Yes. Very as well, which is, which is funny. I'm, you know, I have a hard time getting in touch with my emotions, even while, uh, going through the whole cancer ordeal. And, and there's some, you know, my wife sees it. There's people, uh, you know, Jasper, I was, we had a sleepover down in the Basque country at Steve Vatia's, uh, I think it was two years ago. And Jasper came up and gave me a big hug and he said, Ooh, you're tense, man. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm tense. We're all here. We're, you know, having a good time. And he's like, Oh, but no, nah, man, you just, it's like, Ooh, you need to work. You need to work some stuff out. He's like massaging my, you know, my, <laughs> and it's the same thing, even, and Carwin Williams to speak of another, you know, legend out of, uh, out of the UK. Um, he's the same way. He, you know, he, he looks at me sometimes and it's just like, oh, hey, let me, you know, you need to, you need, you need to work something out there and he'll, you know, get behind me and kind of start massaging my shoulders and stuff. It's like, you're all tense and everything. I don't feel tense at all. But once they start yeah. putting their hands on me, I, you know, I feel you it. Feel so it. there's a whole spiritual side of things that I'm, you know, that I still need to learn to, to connect with. Um, and you know, it'll come, yeah. it'll come. And, um, and then it's just to wrap it up on the cancer thing. I just, there's this one 
girl from uh, UCLA. Her name's Susie Parker, who was, I knew her back then, but she was more friends of friends of mine. And, and uh, she, I'll, I'll send you the link um, of her blog. Um, and of course, because the, the name is escapes me for the moment, but, um, and she's had a brain tumor uh, for the last 10 years or so. And every two years it comes back. Wow. She's had it excised, I think four times now. And, uh, and things have been going really well for her. And so she's been writing a blog about it, about her. And, and, and she got in touch when I had, when I was diagnosed and said, yeah, you know, in case you're interested, this is what I do. And so I read her stuff and it's like, wow, you know, this is way heavier than, than what I'm going through. Cause my doctors have told me that, you know, six months, then this is, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm home free. And, and she's just been diagnosed now, not with the, another tumor on her brain, but tumors on her liver and wow. And still, but just the most positive motive, just, she's a, she's an inspirational person for me. And I now try and share her story with other people that I know, like Sasha, Sasha Steinhorst, um, from uh, world cup of skateboarding. Um, he's battling cancer right now. And I, shared Susie's story with him the other day and and uh and that's kind of what I'm I'm you know I'm far from perfect but I I'm trying to you know as much as possible the way people stepped up to help me um I try and do that for for other people um who have the same or similar illnesses as well um Francois Pio from Rip Curl his daughter Dune is uh making her way through yeah um a similar uh style of cancer as i had right, right now as well and so i've been in contact with her as well and yeah and um yeah and it, and it's you know i just like i said just try and put a spot positive i've always been a very positive person and and you know like, like i said i went into a deep dark place and 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 i got cancer i think because of it and so now i'm really trying to just yeah turn it around you know 180 degrees and get that positivity back and help you know other people because you can you know you can beat it and the mental um the mind is an incredible tool i think we you know we heard that from from sean lee and we yeah. heard that some from some of your other guests yeah um, well, that was the whole that was sean's whole yeah moral really wasn't it yeah of the whole episode that's exactly it and yeah. and i even um heard of one read the story of a one buddhist monk who cured his cancer through meditation and i mean it's an actual true story he had cancer and he just meditated 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 saw himself his body rejecting and ejecting the cancer um, from his body and becoming healthy again and and he cured cancer with his mind so it's positive mental attitude <laughs> is really what it's all about a fitting note to end it dave Thank you, man. My that, pleasure. It's a two-parter. <laughs> Woo! Definitely. Definitely. No, it's been epic. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a pleasure. It's an, it's an honor because from the beginning, I've really uh, loved your podcast. And, uh, you know, looking sideways, it's a special thing. Wow, it <laughs> means a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All good, Matt. Right. 
So imagine recording that episode with all the emotional peaks and troughs contained therein. Then imagine cracking the beers and having a good old man hug as me and Dave did. And then imagine thinking you'd lost the entire conversation due to kit malfunction. You know, you got you have them dreams or you've got an exam that you haven't revised for. That does not really come close to the feeling I had as I desperately scanned my digital recording device, hoping to locate the lost files. Happily, they were there all along, and instead I got to laugh about it with an aghast-looking Dave when I told him what I suspected might have happened. Anyway, all was well that ended well, and we did end up with that episode in the bag, and my heart did eventually slow down to a normal pace. Big thank you to Dave for doing it. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed my experiment and going for an episode double the usual length. Please send me feedback on that one. I'm sure people will. They always do. It's podcast at wearelookingsideways.com or Instagram messages at we look sideways. My DMs are open, as I believe the kids say. And I do try and go back to everybody who contacts me. So yeah, drop me a line there if you're into it. Like I said at the top, huge thanks to my friends at Vero for their support in these three Hostigal Omnibus episodes. I had a great time. I got some banging episodes out of it, which was, of course, the point. Okay, that was it for this week. Big thanks for listening. I'm not going to do housekeeping corner because i mean we're, we're well over two hours now and i'll let you get your life back um but i'm just back from the kennel mountain festival where i ticked off three intriguing chats with my friends dan milner leo holding and drum roll jenny jones and i think you're gonna like them i'm gonna try and get them up as soon as i can so keep an eye out for them in the meantime you know the drill by now head to the website www.wearelookingsideways.com to check out the show notes sign up to the newsletter and buy some merch follow me on social media etc etc and so on and so forth i'll be back next week so in the meantime enjoy yourselves and i'll catch you then nice one